Well, thank you again for joining on this episode of The Freed Thinker. I'm going to dive right in. I'm going to bring my guest in. Uh, not uh, a surprise guest for many of you. You all know Colton. Colton Carlson, thank you so much for coming back on and joining me here. Yeah, always a pleasure. Thank you. Of course. We are going to just dive right in. This is part two uh, of our response to uh, Drs. Tim uh, Stratton and J.P. Moreland. Uh, and their series talking about the freed, or sorry, the freed thinker, that's mine, the free thinking uh, argument. Um, and we were going to do part two dealing with the second half of their first video, but they came out with the second one. Um, and so we're just going to jump to that one. Maybe we'll get back to the second half of the last one, but I think we both agree the second half was kind of more of the same of the first half in that video. So uh, yeah. this one, this one, they actually engage with you quite a bit. They talk about Paraboom. They get into a little bit more of some of the nitty gritty. So this one seems like it's going to be a little bit more um, apropos for the discussion. So uh, with that, any, any thoughts before we jump in? No, I, yeah, I just like to say, I, I'm, I appreciate uh, if Stratton ever watches this. Finally, I'm so thankful that he finally deals with some of the uh, compatibilist arguments. And so that to me is a great blessing. And I would just want to say that at the very front, like even though I still disagree with his interpretation of, let's just say, Frank Russell arguments or Perry Boom's deliberation compatibilism, which is the bulk, I think, of the video, I still appreciate their willingness to go into the literature. That is, that is amazing. And so um, before the critiques start flying, I just want to make sure that's clear. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think uh, it, it goes without saying both of us uh, have, uh, you know, have enormous respect for these two. We're not trying to um, in, in any way belittle them or their work or, or anything like that. Um, but we do find, I, I think it's, I think it's fair to say both of us, uh, uh, and I've said this before, I, I, I actually have read very little of, of J.P. Moreland. I know for kind of such a stalwart that he is in Christian apologetics, mm. I've read, pro it's probably shockingly little. I probably should have read more, but I, I just, I, I really haven't read. I think I've read a couple of contributions that he has to more like anthologies on apologetics, um, but I, I haven't really read much of his work. Um, so I, I know him more by reputation and name than actual and actual arguments. Um, but I think, you, you know, for, for several years, you and I have, have basically been engaging with, uh, not just Tim Stratton, but with the Molinists, um, and saying there's, you know, there's something kind of fundamentally wrong, um, not only with their, with their views, but how they engage, um, compatibilists and how they actually yeah. try to understand and represent our views. Um, uh, I don't think, I don't think I, we actually would have produced as much content about this as we have if they just kind of only discuss their own stuff and we're like, ah, we disagree, but you know, you do you, yes, all of their stuff, they keep trying to come over uh, and engage the compatibilists on in ways that we find very problematic um, that yeah. keeps, I think, pushing us uh, to, to respond. So um, any thoughts for uh, I, I jump in? No, let's go to town. All right. So uh, I'm going to share my screen just while I'm doing this. Uh, I did put them on two times speed this time. Last time we only got through about 25 minutes or so of the first video, and that was on time and a half. I put it on two times speed. It's not to try to make them sound like chipmunks. Tim Stratton, it talks a little bit faster than Moreland, and at two times, he's it's fine, but it's it, it, it's fast. But he, most of the contributions come from J.P. Moreland uh, in in this episode for the most part, and he talks uh, quite a bit slower than Tim, and so at two times speed, it's you should be able to follow along fine. So. Uh, with that, I'm going to start them. And just when you're ready to pause, let me know and I'll 
pause it. Let me see. I think I have to turn this away. Yeah. Okay. There we go. A question sent to me, uh, BJ Allen. And BJ asks, if we can discuss Frankfurt case scenarios and, and ask, do these cases make the case for determinism or compatibilism or for libertarian freedom? Uh, what do you think of these? Well, uh, Terry Frankfurt developed a famous counter argument uh, trying to show that you could be morally responsible, even if you didn't uh, have the power to do otherwise. And uh, it's called the Frankfurt counter examples. And it goes something like this. Suppose that a uh, mad scientist has inserted an electrode in your brain so that he can observe all your mental states and thoughts and so on. And he wants a particular individual uh, uh, to be shot and you have a gun in your hand. And if he sees that through your own deliberations, you're going to shoot this person, uh, the scientist just lays off and doesn't do anything. However, if he sees that you're not going to shoot the individual, then he intervenes and creates the mental states that will uh, determine that you do so. And so uh, fortunately, you decide to do it yourself and you shoot this gentleman, you're responsible, but you couldn't have done otherwise because he would have intervened had you not chosen to and made sure that uh, that took place. Now, this is supposed to show that you could have uh, moral responsibility without the ability to do otherwise. Uh, does it work? No, uh, for, for three reasons. The first one is that in a certain sense, uh, Frankfurt is presupposing uh, compatibilism or determinism by the very example, note carefully, that he thinks that there are things that he can observe about your mental states to determine whether you're gonna do it or not. But that's a deterministic view, because on that view, it is your mental states that cause your subsequent mental states, which cause your body movements. But on the libertarian view, it is the agent's own free exercise of active power that causes his body uh, to move, and there's nothing to observe, because no conditions leading up to the moment of choice are sufficient to determine what you're going to do. Thus, uh, the very idea that Frankfurt smuggles into the cases that you could observe and then know uh, presuppose a compatibilist view and beg begs the question. The second thing, yeah, I, was, I was already ready to stop it right there for you. <laughs> right. So there's a couple of things. So what he does is there's uh, two essential uh, incompatibilist arguments or responses rather to the Frankfurt style case. First of all, Frankfurt style, as you noted to me above, Frankfurt style cases are not arguments for compatibilism. They were right. never considered arguments for compatibilism. They're just, as Fisher says, the first step to compatibilism. So uh, all Frankfurt style cases show is that uh, all Frankfurt, sorry, it's my cat in the back. All Frankfurt style uh, cases show is that PAP is false. That you, in other words, you don't need alternative possibilities to have moral responsibility. That's all they tried to show. Right. It's not that, and it's not. It's not that PAP is false. Is that it's not necessary for for freedom, right? Uh, yeah, and and that I think, yeah. So I should clarify. Yes, that's correct. I think Bignon and other scholars do go far, and they say through the independent arguments that PAP is therefore false. I think Fisher though tends to say uh, PAP is false because I don't need it, um, and rather guidance control. Uh, I would have to look back. I know some compatibles say that, but that's a good point. You're right. So it's just not necessary. Yeah. And that means we can be morally responsible and free in the in a certain sense without having a categorical alternative. So that's the first point. The second point is what Moreland presses here is the dilemma defense. So that's one of the big yeah. main uh, defenses against Frankfurt style cases. And it was populated by Whitaker and Kane and, um, from 1996 on 1998 and so forth. So basically what it says is you either have two horns of the dilemma, you have an indeterministic horn, the compatibilist has two horns of the dilemma when they press the Frankfurt style case. You have an indeterministic horn or deterministic horn. If you press the deterministic horn, basically saying that there are causally sufficient conditions like the neurological states in Jones's brain that determine what he does or causes him to do what he does, even though the counterfactual mechanism, counterfactual intervener doesn't do anything, in the actual sequence, 
that idea still presupposes determinism. So therefore, it begs the question against uh, incompatibilism or rather indeterminism in general. And that's that's fine. And then the indeterminist accord says, OK, well, if you don't want to say that, well, then that means Jones is actually indeterministic. And if he's indeterministic, that means nothing can causally necessitate his or her actions. So that means how can the counterfactual intervener actually know whether or not Jones will make the decision he wants to make? My response is, I don't think a Molinist can press the deterministic horn. Uh, and here's why. And Moreland does press the deterministic horn here. He says, well, it begs the question against compatibilism uh, or against incompatibilism, rather. But I don't think a Molinist has that option because what he's saying is there is no possible way in which the, the counterfactual intervener can actually know what that agent, Jones, could do unless he first determined it. Right. But notice, Molinus pressed the exact same thing. They don't need determinism for God to know what the uh, uh, agent would do in any circumstance. They don't need that at all. Right. So that means the Molinus actually does agree, saying that, yes, the counterfactual intervener can know indeterministically what Jones would do or will do in any circumstance, though Jones could not do otherwise. So I really don't see, to me, it's a taxi cab fallacy. So in their offense, they actually, uh, uh, they argue Molinism saying that, oh no, knowledge is uncausal. Right. James, James White, the debate with uh, Tim Stratton, he had that very specific scene. <laughs> that was kind of awkward, but uh, knowledge is not causal. He was actually right. saying that, Tim, over knowledge. Let me say that again. He says, knowledge is not causal. Okay, great. So knowledge is not caught, but then they go back on their defense right here and say the only way the counterfactual intervener could know what Jones will do is in a causal relation. You don't even believe that. Right. <laughs> right. So it's, I don't understand why you're pressing the deterministic horn when Molinists themselves don't believe it. It's right. ridiculous. Yeah. I wonder if you could almost, you could almost change the, the Frankfurt style where it's not a mad scientist, but it's God um that, that that just does it um and that would actually be interesting we 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 should work on this offline because that may actually be be interesting because uh it, it seems that any objection to that would either have to undermine some of their molinistic um uh underpinnings or I'm there there's been some simple foreknowledge theists like david yeah. hunt who have done exactly that although okay. i'm with tempe tempe has written about it and he agreed, and it's called a blockage Frankfurt style case, which I actually write about in right. my response to Stratton. And I say, uh, I borrow from uh, Hunt's view. Well, I don't use Hunt's example. I use Mealy and Rob's example because I think it's better. But anyways, a lot of critics like Tempe, Perry, Boom, Kane all say, oh, it's just a plain case of determinism. I agree personally, but what it does show is not, I don't, I don't use Frankfurt style cases as arguments against that. What I use them for is to show that there's still agency in the Frank Purcell, like it's still his own deliberations, not efficient sense, but still his own deliberations. And guess what? Even incompatibles agree, like David Hunt, right? like Stump. And so these, these incompatibles use Frank Purcell arguments to show that their own simple foreknowledge view can still be had though the agent couldn't do otherwise, they're still the source of their actions. In fact, Stump has a case, which I, I talk about in Stratton's volume called G, as it for gray, and it's 
beautifully written. It's a really, really good case. Uh, Tempe responds to the case in his book on free will mm -hmm. in second edition, 2012. And he actually revised the case to make it even better because it depends on the kind of how the alternative sequence comes in. There's a, this is really getting deep into the woods of Frank Rosales, but it's how the counterfactual intervener, what they say in the literature cuts the right. mechanism, the actual sequence mechanism. So you can have an actual straight cutting uh, preemption, where basically is like the original Frank Verstappen example, which Moreland talks about. He just cuts it because he doesn't want him to do what he does. So he cuts that mechanism and then almost like a zap, he does what he wants to do. But that does not need to be the only kind of mechanism that is present in a Frank Verstappen case. So Tempe, along with others like Stump, uh, argue for something like a trumping uh, preemption where it's like a, you see a general or a major rather and um, a sergeant and you're a private in the army. They both say um, salute or march. Well, which one are you following? Well, right. technically you're following the general because he has better authority, right? right? But they say at the same time. So does that mean the general cuts the sergeant's actual? No. In the actual sequence of events, you're following along the path, though you couldn't do otherwise. You're still marching but it's on the general's orders and not. So that's really deep in the woods. I explain all of it in volume one, but the idea is there's different mechanisms, different things. And Stump says you can apply it to God. In fact, Stump says you can apply her case to Molinism, <laughs> which okay. is exactly proving my point. Right. Because she herself disagrees that the dilemma defense is not good for the Molinists precisely for this reason. That right. the Molinists does not have it at their disposal to use the dilemma defense. Why? Because they themselves don't think knowledge is causal. But when you right. press the deterministic horn, what you're saying is knowledge is causal. Right. Yeah. So it's yeah. And, and I wonder. I wonder too. And and uh, and this is this is somewhat where I was thinking too. Is it, it seems like maybe, maybe I'm spitballing this a little bit too much. But it seems also like if they want to say, okay, well. Because for them, you know, the future isn't lethically open, but it is metaphysically open, right? So, so, you, so you, you'd almost have to say, well, well, God. Um, in, in a, I'm trying to think of what they might say. They might say, well, 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 God wouldn't, you know, need to do that because he's only actualized a world where, where you know, a black is going to vote a certain way. Sure. Right? But then we would say, okay, but but you you either if you say that, then then it is weird to say that God wouldn't need to be there as a, a, a as an intervener. Because then you're saying, well, black's only going to do that one thing, right? Yeah. Um, you, it, so it, it seems like if they want to say, well, you can't just swap out the mad scientist for God, it has these kind of metaphysical differences. It seems like, well, you should be able to. Otherwise, you're also saying that it's not only not alethically open, it's also not metaphysically open either. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I agree. Uh, and, but I guess, yeah, I agree. The, the whole point, though, is I don't see... And I'm not alone. An incompatibilist agrees with me, right? Other incompatibilist, David Hunt, who's a simple foreknowledge thesis. And I guess Stump, who has Molinistic leanings, though she is a simple foreknowledge the uh, theist, she would still agree that, yes, Frank style cases are good. Yes, the Molinists can't press a deterministic horn. So they should affirm my case, which she thinks completely eradicates alternative possibilities. And so what is the Molinist to do? Right. Well, the point is they can't use the dilemma defense. So Moreland's uh, first point here, I don't see is valid. All right. Even though I think it's even deeper, uh, Tim, and that is the Frankfurt cases 
revealingly still have a two-way ability. Yeah. And that two-way ability is not located in your body movements. Mm -hmm. Because one way or the other, your arm's going to move and pull that trigger. The two-way ability is over what happens inside you, and, it, and it's the two-way ability between these. I exercise my active power and freely shoot the gentleman, or I refrain from exercising my active power, in which case the observer determines that my body moves. Yeah. So it doesn't rule out uh, two-way ability. Right. It just relocates it from the body to my exercise of active uh, power, my refrain. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there are, so I say this exact same thing, and you're going to hear this a lot. I respond. I, I pretty much know exactly what they're going to say, how they're going to say it, because I've already talked about it in my volume one with Stratton. So in my Frankfurt style uh, section, I had one positive, one negative response. The negative response I had is exactly this. They're not going deep enough into the Frankfurt literature. Sure. Basically, a, a basic Frankfurt style example, let's call, uh, let's call it P. That's what I call it in... Um, in my volume to Stratton because he used politicians and stuff. In this basic Frankfurt style example, P, yes, you could transfer the uh, freedom of, you can distinguish between the freedom of will to the freedom of action. So physical action and willing like mental deliberation. So from the physical substrate to the mental substrate. Sure, I agree. I actually said that in my response. I'm like, that's positive. Like, yeah, that's, that's fine. You could totally do that. That's why I think Frankfurt, original Frankfurt style arguments are not that good, uh, well off, because they aren't as detailed as they could be. What's the problem? There are detailed Frankfurt style cases now. Right. Yeah, we've very, had very, very 50 good. years of advancements on it. Yeah, like yeah. this is the number one step towards compatibilism, 50 plus years of Frankfurt style examples. And you have Stump's case, you have Tempe's revised case, you have tax evasion cases from Periboom, you have Melian Robb's uh, magnet case, um, blockage case, you have David Hunt's original blockage. I mean, I can continue. Like, it, it's just a lot of different cases. What's the point? The point is, Frankfurt style cases now push the mechanism so far back in the mental substrate that they did not have the ability to do otherwise. Not just to do otherwise, but to think otherwise right now this is where i'm i think you may disagree with me uh bella but i personally am kind of on their same page where i think okay let's just say the jones couldn't do otherwise and couldn't think otherwise in the sense that he couldn't contradict his own actions so he couldn't go this way or that way he could only go or sorry think this way but then right. the idea is what i agree with is that and tempe says this exact same thing with Stump's case, that Jones could still think how to go this way in different ways. So it's called the mode, the flicker mode. Uh, so basically it's a flicker freedom. So Jones could still think how to vote Republican. So let's just say Jones has a decision between voting Republican and Democrat. Okay, so big, basic Frankfurt style cases says Jones can only vote Republican, like action wise, okay. They're saying right now that Jones could own, but he could still think to vote Democrat or Republican. And I say, okay, I agree. But then you push the mechanism farther back in more Frankfurt style cases, like Stump's G case, what she calls it. And then that allows the flicker to be surrounded only in the vote of Republican. So that means not only can Jones not vote Democrat, Jones can't even think to vote Democrat. Right. Now, Tempe then comes along and says, no, I think this is good 
but Jones can still think how to think Republican. So like uh, Jones could think Republican by voting this way or that way or that way. And that's still a flicker. However, what's the point? It's so weak because it, it doesn't have the contradiction to not vote Republican. Yeah. It can only vote Republican. Just Jones can only think about how to vote Republican. So yeah. the idea is this. Yes, I agree with them a little bit, but the problem is it's not sufficiently robust. That small, small, small flicker is so small that it's not even worth saying, oh, yeah, I have moral responsibility because of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, it, isn't that, that that would be roughly analogous to what Mueller calls like the difference between contriety and and, and contradiction. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah. yeah. So, so you're, you're, yeah, so that you may have this, this ability of contriety or this power of contriety where you can, you know, it's not A or not A, or it's not, it's not A or B, but it's like, you know, different kinds of A yeah. um, that, that you could pick, right? So, you know, Mueller talks about, you know, sin and righteousness, you know, we can only choose sin, we can't choose righteousness, that's off the board, it's not, it's not righteous or unright, it's unrighteousness, but we can, we can kind of sin how we want to sin. Um, sure. And that's similar to what Stratton wants to say with his limited libertarian freedom. I respond yeah. to all of that in my volume yeah. one. <laughs> uh, yeah. So th this is, you know, maybe, maybe he, maybe he votes Republican and, and, you know, he, he presses the button, maybe he slams the button, maybe, you know, whatever it is, you know, you have this type of thing. In my, my, my kind of gut feeling on this, uh, and, you know, I, I think there is some literature that's coming out is, is that all, all that's done now is said, Hey, that problem that you all solved for on the on the original ideas of flicker of freedom is now just pushed back a step. I have a feeling if people really wanted to keep chasing down this rabbit trail, we'd probably yeah. see that flicker, you know, because yeah. you can set up the same type of constraints on it that you applied previously and you would see it chase further and further down the rabbit trail. But I think you're right that at this point, most people say, I mean, fine, we can stop there. But that still isn't the type of, you know, uh, that still isn't the type of uh, contriety still isn't the type of thing that the power of contradiction would get you with regards to sponsor responsibility. Exactly. So, like, if you concede that, that you know, we've won that hill and pushed you back to that hill, that's fine. You can stay there. We just kind of all agree that, you know, fine, have that hill. We don't really care. That's really not worth trying to take anymore. Yeah, I agree. And the issue is when I when I talk. So I write about this in the Frank Style section. I do bring up those things, the contradiction and the contrariety. So Jones does have, in the basic Frank Style case, like P, right? Uh, he does have the liberty of contra or contradiction and contrariety because he can contradict his own actions via thinking. He can right. contradict his actual actions, physical actions, but he can contradict his actions via thinking. That's what Moreland says. But then Stump's G case completely trumps that and says, no, 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 Jones doesn't even have the contradiction via thinking. So right. he still has to vote Republican. Now, Tempe comes along and says, oh, he still has a liberty of contrariety. He can choose how to vote Republican. And then to me, then I'm like, okay, that's true. But it's so, so, so weak, that doesn't matter. But here's the problem for them, Moreland and Stratton. They wanna say for deliberation, I have to choose a true belief over a false belief. That's a contradiction. Right. They don't have that if the Frank Fristyle case goes through, specifically Stump's G case. Right. All they have is a weak contrary flicker, right. one that can only choose between alternative paths in either the truth class or the false class. They can't right. jump back and forth because the contradiction is unavailable given Stump's G case. That's a problem for their view. Right. And I've right. yet to see any of them bring it up because they're so they're down here in the basics 
when they should be arguing with the actual, like the advanced cases, because the advanced cases are where the debate is. Everyone can prove Frankfurt style uh, cases, the original case, wrong. That's old news. That's 25 plus years old. Right. Okay. What about the new cases? Right. You don't say. Yeah. And I think, I think we'll start seeing, like I said, I mean, if, if this, if they, if, if, if people like, you know, uh, Moreland, uh, or, or, or really, you know, if, if anyone, uh, worth their salt in, in, in the, the, you know, the, the, the philosophy of action starts writing all these types of things. I, my, my prediction is we'll start seeing like inception style Frankfurt yeah. cases, where you have a Frankfurt case, you know, inside of a Frankfurt case that would really block all this anyways. So it's just, yeah. Uh, I, I, I just don't, it's not, you're, you're right. It's not, it's not fruitful for them and it doesn't get them what they need. Um, which, which I think your, I, I think your original assessment of the taxi cab is right, is that they want us to, they want to use this for a certain end. So they get in the taxi cab to go to a certain way, but they need to dismiss it when it comes to their own exactly. position. So, so both of their critiques so far have not worked out. Yeah. So from exercising after power is a dismal failure when it comes to that two way ability. And third, <clears throat> so I, I, I don't, I don't want to stop it every time this happens, but they, the, there is something that kind of bothers me in this is that there's all these little like throwaway lines that happen in this video. Um, this is one Tim Stratton does a lot of them where he's like, well, that just, into that, and then that just is libertarian freedom. And it's like, well, no, that's, we're, we're still debating that topic. That, that, that's, yeah. this is, this is the type of thing where it's like, it's just a visible failure. I mean, only if you just ignore all of the responses that, that, that have been given over the past 25, 30 years to everything that you just said. I know. And I, I want to tell the reader or the listener rather, and then Tim, if he's listening to this, read my volume one response where I spend literally 60 plus pages on Frankfurt style examples showing, yes, conceding some areas to Tim, but then also critiquing how he uses it. And they are falling right into my trap because I knew that they were going to say something like this. Well, Tim, rather, I didn't know more than I was going to say, it, but it makes sense. Uh, and yet he's still doing it so uh yeah they need to they need to go deeper into the literature here yeah. it really does focus on the wrong issue uh, as, as will come up later perhaps and the central idea of a which uh, sorry i'm just going to be a little a little pedantic here. what uh which just i i would understand if this was like hey we're just kind of i, I got i got jp Moreland on he's not really a, not that he's not an expert in the field but this isn't his dis like he's not a, an expert in, in philosophy of action Right. Not that either you or I are or anything like that, but like, I would understand if it's kind of like we're shooting the breeze on this episode, how we talk about it, but it's like, you're, you're writing an article, you're trying to get a, a, an article published in journals in 2022 after all this litter, like it, and, and it sounds like you've already written the article. So if like, by the time you're already ready to publish, you should be interacting with all of the relevant literature that's current up to date. And or so the relevant pieces of the relevant literature. That's yeah. right. And so, and so I like, I'm, I'm worried that it sounds like the article's already written and either submitted or about to be submitted. And they just seem uh, unaware of the, of the responses um, uh, that, yeah. that, that have been given. Um, and to your point, even by lots of in, other incompatibilists, who would say this line of argumentation from from more than others is we'll just call it problematic like it can't be that much of an abysmal failure if people on both sides of the debate are saying yeah like yeah. yep <laughs> anyway. 
All right, I'll, I'll, I'll stop being uh, high horsey a little bit. Behind the libertarian account of freedom is not to liability, though I do believe in that, but it's the concept of active power as opposed to a passive liability and the first moving ability to exercise active power. By, by overlooking that, he thinks that his objections work, but Frankfurt uh, focused on the wrong issue. Yeah, so I'll just add that when we're discussing Frankfurt-style cases, as far as a note, the agent in the scenario still seems to be a thinker and actor who is not causally determined if the agent freely chooses to think and act as the counterfactual intervening observer wants them to think and act. And, and so I contend that if the counterfactual intervener's hands are off, as it were, then the agent who could not actually pull it off and do otherwise is still free in the, in the libertarian sense. So at least awesome. the agent is being uh, causally determined by something or someone else. That does not follow. <laughs> no. uh, it's called source compatibilism at best. It is source incompatibilism where you have a weak flicker and you're not determined to do anything other than what you're doing, but you still have that small, small alternative, but yet so weak that how is it possible that you could actually use that flicker to be rationally responsible? Given your view, Mr. Dr. Stratton, you need the epistemic duties to believe a true belief over a false belief. That's a contradiction. You don't have that in the Frank style example, the advanced forms, at least in your puny, old man uh frank for style example yes but as i recall tim stratton is very pertinent on having steel man's given right so steel man the frank for style case deal with the actual argument the advanced ones you don't have that conclusion that libertarian freedom pops out the other side now he tries to say that on page five of his book i'm looking at it right now he says the exact same thing and actually he quotes moreland and Moreland does, the first thing he says for about libertarian freedom is that it's active power. But the next thing is that it's an originator. And then the next thing is the categorical ability to exert his behavior to causally bring about something that determine, causally determines P not to do otherwise. So the idea is, yes, libertarian freedom is about active power, but Frankfurt doesn't fail in that regard because he doesn't believe in libertarian freedom. He's trying to show the idea, the intuition rather, that you do what you do, though you didn't have the ability to do otherwise. But you don't get libertarian freedom out of that. That's what he's trying. You get at best compatibilism, source compatibilism. And at worst, you get source incompatibilism. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, and, and this will come up. I, I, I found lots of problematic statements when it when it starts getting into like the the anthropological issues and what actually makes an agent, um, and when an actual agent is oh, the yeah. Yeah. like it, it it gets it gets let's just say convoluted at best and entirely disconnected at worst. Um, but the thing that I keep being surprised about is without argument, and it we'll see it happen. It happened a bunch in the in the in the last episode. It happens in spades here is they just seem to think that the instant you have sourcehood, you don't have compatibilism anymore. Yeah. And I want to be like, do you, are you not aware that like a huge swath of compatibilists are source compatibilists? Yes. Like, it, it, like they, and I'm not even trying to say they argue against it. It's like, they think that the instant you have sourcehood, the only people who say that are incompatibilists. Yeah. It, the, it's not even the, like oh, those compatibilists, they're inconsistent for A, B and C reasons. It's like those don't even exist. And it's worth noting that Tempe does believe in Frankfurt style examples work in a lot of different ways. Like, first of all, he doesn't even think the dilemma defense is worth it because it's a, well, let's just say that he thinks it was a mistake from Frankfurt to put in the idea that black was a good judge of things, which people take to be deterministic. 
but he thinks that's a mistake. So he thinks the whole dilemma defense is completely worthless. He actually yeah. pretty much says that in his book, which is funny. He takes the flicker of freedom route and he does say that, yeah, Frank Versailles examples are awesome, but they don't get rid of the weak flicker of freedom. But that doesn't matter because the weak flicker of freedom shows us what's actually pertinent to the debate and that's sourcehood. And right. so he says it's incompatibilist because you still have that weak flicker. So you have the weak flicker plus you have the source. So therefore he's like incompatibilism, but source incompatibilism. Libertarianism, he does not say. Why? Because libertarianism is a is on the on, closer to source incompatibilism, obviously, because it's incompatibilist, but it's a stronger view. It, like, it needs the contradiction. That's that's libertarianism. It needs the liberty of contradiction, the ability to think or not to think. And so that's what it needs. So I think given the literature, Tim Stratton is more, it, it depends on how he wants to go here. He either keeps his limited libertarian freedom, which he can, but then I would just classify him as a source incompatibilist. And then he has weak flickers to deal with, which Tempe does, and that's fine. Or he gets rid of this, um, but if he does that, then he has to get rid of this idea of epistemic duties. I have the ability to think or not to think. Right. But then he's never going to do that, right? Because his whole idea of the free thinking argument is to be able to have carefully follow the evidence to truth over falsehood. So right. the liberty of contradictions built into it, which is why I am saying they don't match. Right. That's what I've spent all of volume one pretty much saying. And so Moreland's saying the same thing here. Tim is saying, and so it it just doesn't work. Right. Um, but yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah. I agree. I think they say all these things without argument, and it's unfortunate. Yeah, and and a lot of it's a it, it's kind of a, just a patchwork, and sometimes they'll want to use an argument to make a point, but that argument doesn't work within their own thesis, and so yeah. you're kind of constantly untangling these um, these dialectical maneuvers that they're trying to make. Um, yeah, it's exhausting, is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, or nobody's gonna think that. So, so the agent's libertarian freedom and then desert responsibility is only violated. When the counterfactual observing intervener becomes an actual intervener. And in Franco cases still seem to presuppose and assume not merely uh, what's called source of libertarian freedom. Um, JP, I think you call it the ability to be a first mover. Um, but it seems to me that they also assume or are open to, as you know, the categorical alternative possibilities when it comes to thinkings and tryings, even though these cases show that the agent has no ability to actually pull the otherwise off in the physical world. I was really confused by this because it seemed like JP was, uh, that Moreland was saying Frankfurt style cases assume determinism. And now Stratton is saying, well, they, they actually work for us because they assume libertarian like that's did, yeah this is what yeah i, I literally I said this wrong? the dialectics are so confuzzled <laughs> uh yeah i agree it, is, it doesn't make any sense they're not they're not agreeing with each other even in their own video yeah so uh moreland wants to say frank versailles examples say that they assume determinism but he does i think the third critique does say like oh it actually assumes libertarianism I guess that's fine. And that's kind of what uh, Stratton wants to say, is that they assume libertarian. I just don't think any of it follows, though. So you, know even... reminds, you know what it reminds me of? Uh, and I love Stratton. But have you ever seen the movie What About Bob? No. Uh, no, I've heard of it, though. It's fantastic. You should watch it. But there, there, there's this guy, and, he, and he, t he tells this joke about a therapist, and there's this sex addict, and he goes to the therapist. And the therapist is like, he draws a picture of a house, and then he's like, what do you see? And the sex addict says, two people having sex. And then he draws a picture of a tree and he says, what do you see? And he says, two people having sex. And then he draws a picture of a car and he says, what do you see? And he says, oh, two people having sex. And the, the therapist says, well, it seems like you're, you know, you're addicted to sex. And the guy says, what are you talking about? You're the one drawing all the dirty pictures. And it reminds me, 
it reminds like with like I love Stratton, but it reminds me of like for him, like it's like you know, I, I see a house, libertarian freedom. I see a car, libertarian freedom. I see like, and it's That's just hilarious. It, it's just like it's like every single thing, no matter what it is, no matter what the argument is, without 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 justification for the jump, it's well, libertarian. It assumes libertarian freedom. It's libertarian freedom. It assumes, and I'm like, no, like you need to you need to give arguments for these things, and you and and just because it's like it's like when someone says, oh, well, you know, because as a compatibilist, I'm gonna say, oh, we choose things all the times. Sure. And I can, within compatibilism, I can say that if you, with, given the understanding of compatibilism, mm -hmm. Tim will come along and be like, "Oh, well, you said choice, so you're assuming libertarian freedom." And I'm like, "No, I'm, I'm, I'm not. I can say that thoroughly, <laughs> unless you can show otherwise, unless you can give some defeater or show by independent reason how, as a compatibilist, I can't say choice without begging the question." No, I'm not assuming libertarian. It just it it reminds me of that thing where no matter what it is, it's libertarian freedom. It's just he he just has libertarian freedom colored glasses, no matter what he looks at. I, I yeah I agree. Um, I spent a good chunk of time actually detailing his responses to Vignon, criticizing Vignon for believing in choice in the rejoinder and everything. I have a whole section in volume two already written, basically about him and Vignon. That's it. And they're back and forth over the years and how he just does not get it right. And Vignon's trying to be trying just to put the dialectic back in the framework. And yet Stratton is not, uh, he's just missing it because of maybe the libertarian glasses on. That's funny. That's a good, good analogy. I think. On going. So um, for example, speaking of another uh, Frankfurt case, the, the voting uh, experiment that many of our viewers are aware of um, in this voting booth, the agent does seem to have libertarian freedom in the sense that the agent gets to decide and determine exactly how what must be the case is executed. And so does the agent vote on his own, not causally determine uh, for the Republican, or does the counterfactual intervener causally determine the agent to cast the vote for the Republican candidate? Now that, that choice is up to the agent and is not causally determined by the intervener. So ultimately, Frankfurt cases assume the agent has the opportunity and ability to think and try to do otherwise, and this is obvious given the existence of the counterfactual. Yeah. Right, but Frankfurt cases aren't trying to prove compatibilism, right? It's just trying to show, it, it, you know, in, in one sense, you didn't have the alternative possibility to do otherwise. A robust one. So oh, yeah. a contradicted, a contradictory one. You don't right. have that. So once you have that, when, once, once you understand what the purpose of Frankfurt style cases were, everything that Tim just said is irrelevant. Yeah, irrelevant, meaningless. So, so these cases seem to be evidence of libertarian freedom. They definitely don't. So do they assume determinism or the evidence of libertarian freedom? Which one is it? So, is deter so, I mean, because what that is, is it will, if, if, if we assume determinism, that's evidence of libertarian freedom, right? That's it. like, if we put these two men together, what they've just said, that's mm -hmm. what, that, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Well, yeah. However, if the agent thinks or tries to do otherwise, then the counterfactual intervener will step in to ensure that the agent cannot actually pull it off and do otherwise. So would you have anything else to add, JP? I think that is a spot on insight. And I would want to just draw attention to one thing. How can you think it's spot on insight? He just contradicted what you just said. The, the issue is, though, like, as you brought up, Moreland, is, his expertise is not on free will. Now, let's not kid the audience. Our expertise is not on free will. But you right. know what the, the difference is? I cite the relevant literature. I cited Hunt, Tempe, Stump. I can give you years if I want to. I've written about it completely, relying upon their works, down to the letter. It's in the volume one, Stratton. So I, res I, I painstakingly, because I know it's out of my field, I painstakingly rely upon the experts and not just my uh, first come, first serve, just, I guess, prima facie intuition about it. 
uh, which is what I honestly think that they're doing here. And it's it's just not good enough because right. the literature is just too deep. So right. you need to dive into the literature. So it, it's really dialectically frustrating when they say stuff like this. And I'm just sitting there who has read the literature deep into it. And I'm like, what? Like no incompatibilist or compatibilist would ever say the things that they would say. Yeah. No incompatibilist yeah. would argue the way that they're arguing. Yeah. And this is why I love having you on because I mean, I, I, I consider myself decently well read on this topic, but you, you know, you put me to shame on the thing uh, on the, just the, the amount that you've read on this. Um, but, but I think what, what my training and what, and what, you know, what I, I don't claim to be an expert either, but one of the things that I know if, you know, if it's my spiritual gift or whatever it is, is that I can, I, I, I look at these things as I'm going to, I'm going to critique the, the dialectic yeah. And and I, I'm going to be a critic of the argument, the structure, and the argument that you're giving. Not necessarily. I'm not. Gonna, I'm not going to be the one that's going to be giving groundbreaking arguments for compatibilism or determinism or new arguments against you know whatever. What, like the, you know, I I've read much more on on Molinism and, and Reform theology and all that kind of stuff on on that end. But in in these regards, you're the one that has you know so much of the actual the, the actual literature but i've read enough of it to know okay this you guys are talking out the side of your neck with regard to what these people are saying and on your actual dialectic on the structure of your argument this is where things are going wrong um yeah. so not to toot our own horns but i think that's why you and i pair well together on these things but uh but uh, but i think you're absolutely right it's not like either of us are saying we are experts on this but there is a certain sense where, you know, if, if, if at our level of reading and understanding, we, you know, we have these type of comprehension where we're seeing these are some pretty glaring flaws, then there is a certain point where we say, look, we would expect better from, from two people who are trying to be experts in this field and, and, and publish, you know, peer reviewed journal articles on it. Right. Yeah, sure. um, so, you know, we, we, we're more just holding their feet to the fire and just saying, do better guys. You said that's really important. Uh, you use the word try. Mm -hmm. Now, that is in the active voice. I tried to call my wife. Mm -hmm. But there is no agency or act, active agency in a compatibilist framework. This was so painful. I'm going to okay, keep so he, So he uses this a lot. And so I think um, let's just deal with it right now because he's good. So we don't have to keep stopping like whenever he says it because just if anyone who's not listened to this video, he says this repeatedly a lot. that basically this idea that compatibilism there's no activity in the agents that's just a passive cog like stratton says moving the mechanism is passively moving through the agent to produce what he produces that is absolutely false no 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 compatibilist would ever say that and since they're using a reductio they must assume our premises otherwise it's literally begging begging the question and that's all it is if you, uh, what they're saying is compatibilism reduces to an inactive agent or passive cog. Okay, that's fine. You can have the argument. But then because they're framing it that way, it's a reductio, which means in order for it to be effective, you need to show, assume the premises of the view you're saying leads to absurd, absurdity. But then in order to do that, you actually have to know the view. Yeah, and you and you can only work within that view. This, this is kind of a hobby horse of mine where I point out, look, you, you you effectively have, I mean, it's a little more nuanced than this, but you effectively have two types of argumentations you can make against a view, right? You have an internal critique and external critique. If you have yeah, an internal yeah. critique, it's kind of a reductio ad absurdum. You're saying, if this view is true, something bad shakes out, either a contradiction or a, a, a view that we all agree, even the people who normally hold it, would want to disaffirm. 
right? There, there's something negative shakes out on the other end, right? Or you do an external critique and say, well, <clears throat> either that we give this independent reason that this, this certain thing is true and that falsifies the basic assumption or the basic uh, affirmations of the view, or uh, again, we we can show you know it, this view entails something and then we can show by independent reasons that that entailment is false right but you need whether it's an internal or an external if it's if it's an internal view you cannot bring in external assumptions you yeah. just can't you you if you do that you've shifted the goalpost or you've or, or you beg the question you've committed one of those two fallacies if you start bringing in externals and that's what they keep doing if you're going to make an internal critique, Stratton and Moreland, you have to stay within the confines of the view. You can't keep bringing in non-proved non uh, external positions. You can't switch back and forth mid-argument between an external and an internal critique back to an, you know, yeah. from an internal to an external back to an internal. It, it, you just can't do that. It's not a valid way to argue. So the idea is, yes, compatibilists do believe we're active. But not not in the sense of origination or uh, ultimacy or sufficiency. Yes, as determinists, we're going to say God is a sufficient reason for what we do. Or at best, if it's evil, if we do evil, then God is the deficient, well, still the sufficient reason. But now not the efficient reason, but the uh, deficient reason. So God is the efficient and sufficient reason for us doing righteousness because he determines it. And he's the sufficient and deficient reason for us doing evil. Okay. I agree that we are not the efficient source at all, but that's what our view means. So you saying activity therefore must imply efficiency is, and if you frame it as in an internal critique, like Bella said, then that means you beg the question. Right. Why should I assume? that in order for me to be an agent, I have to have the efficient activity. You never, they never give us an independent reason. Right. I, I contend, if I'm going to use Aristotle's causation, that a formal cause is just fine. Right. I have the intention, it, the moral responsibility, as uh, White says, and McKenna, and um, Strassen, that it's about the quality of will. So we have a quality of will. And our quality of will is what guides us to moral responsibility or what has blame, uh, praise or blame. It does not matter if we are the efficient cause of that quality of will. At best, I think we're the formal cause. In other words, we guide our intentions. In other words, guidance control. Right. <laughs> uh, right. And I have a whole section, volume two, about guidance control and how Tim Stratton doesn't understand it. But it's... It's that idea. So he keeps saying over and in the video that we don't have activity and it's just not true. Uh, that's why source compatibilists exist because they say in the Frankfurt style case, we are active. Let me ask a question to them then. Where does it, where in the actual sequence of events is Jones inactive? Right. Where? Right. Where? Now, if, and now, depending on how you press the Frankfurt style case or what they could say, they could still maybe get around it which i'm like i said i'm inclined to agree that's why i don't use frankfurt style cases as arguments against uh pap really I, I think that they're just good for agency and i think you can clearly see that in the actual sequence of events in fact so much so tad botham thad botham sorry thad botham he actually makes this distinction between possession and origination 
You know what he says? He doesn't say that in the Frankfurt style case in the actual sequence. He's an agent causalist, by the way, a libertarian. He doesn't say that they don't have any activity. No, on the contrary. He actually says they have activity. Right. It's just that they're not the originator. Yeah, they're the source. He actually calls Jones a source, a source. He agrees. But he just thinks that origination, that kind of source, is better and is necessary for responsibility. Okay, that's fine. But even the incompatibilist thinks that Jones is still a source. Kane still thinks that Jones is still a source. And he, like, despises Frankfurt-style examples. Right. He came up with the dilemma defense in a footnote, 1996, and then started developing it because he, he saw it had muster, and he still defends it to this day. But yet, you know what he doesn't say? That Jones is not a source. That right. Jones is inactive. Because right. he knows the difference between an internal critique and an external critique. Right. But he's never going to press that because that would be question begging against the compatibilist. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think you know, we, we could pull like a Binyam maneuver and say, okay, I mean, we we could give trivial examples on, on determinism um, where, where we all agree that it's determinism, whether it's responsible or not responsible, where, um, where, where the efficient cause um, still uses as secondary means sources. Right. And and, yeah. and 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 the mechanisms themselves play out as the mechanisms are uh, designed in order to right. They 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 are still active within the process itself. Right. It's not just some passive cog. And you could do it in, in examples where we all, we all fully agree that they're deterministic and it doesn't take away. It doesn't take away sourcehood. Now they're going to say, OK, but then that doesn't that doesn't give responsibility. Fine, we can do that, but we we can give these fully deterministic sources where we all agree that they're, they're deterministic, and show it doesn't take away sourcehood, though, which is the exact thing that you're claiming. Yeah. So this idea of passive cogs, honestly, I only think, and I do have a section about this in volume two on guidance control because that's how he relates it. Oh, we don't have guidance control; we're just passive cogs. It's ridiculous. If we have guidance control, we're a source. Right. We're not the source you want. Oh no, the yeah. horror, who cares? If yeah. we're not this, then that, that's where the debate should lie. It's not about whether or not uh, we're your source. We already agreed that we're not that your kind source. of source. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, give us an independent argument for why that kind of source origination is necessary. And I right. think if they were going to, they should follow along with Thad Botham because I think he has a good argument for it. I'm still trying to work through, but, yeah. but the point think- is they haven't done any of that. Yeah, I think if we summarize kind of kind of tongue in cheek a little bit, the, the, the form of their argument, and this is going to keep coming up, is the form of their argument is if compatibilism is true, then in parentheses, and we assume this thing on incompatibilism is true, in parentheses, <clears throat> then contradiction X follows. Yeah. Right. Great. We just, you, you need to prove that parenthetical. You need to give independent reason to prove that parenthetical, right? Because without that, the argument, it, it just it, it just becomes a failed internal critique. You've just begged the question. Yeah. So every time their view becomes plausible because they use active voice language. I don't think it's intentional, but that really matters. It's intentional. We use active voice because we think we're active. <laughs> Asks, uh, what is going on? And so if I, there's also what's called a reductive paraphrase available uh, for active voice statements uh, used by panelists. For example, if I say, I tried to call my wife, what really is going on is, and, and, and attempting to call my wife was caused in me. Yeah. And uh, No. I mean, it means I, as the agent, 
made an attempt to call my wife because I wanted to call my wife. And the mechanism that runs through us yep. that we are in possession of at the time of choice and control of yes through, through guidance control is relevantly or relevantly allows us to keep that activity and so if that's the case which we contend it is because that's what our view is then it follows we have activity right we did choose to actively call my wife or whoever right. Right. So what, what Moreland would need to do is to say, given what's available on determinism, quad determinism, not just deterministic incompatibilism or not just this, this, you know, manipulation type of determinism or just, but what, what's just, if something is determined, quad determined, then, and they would have to fill in that then with some reason to think that it undermines that that intentionality but they they just never do that that's the step they never do yeah yes by putting it passively uh you really get clear on you did not try you received it by putting it passively which isn't our view so yes if you put it passively there's problems but that's not our view so let, let's put it this way how about we colton how about you and i for the record we will speak on behalf of all compatibilists if there is a compatibilist that views agency and sourcehood as entirely passive cogs, like the deterministic incompatibilist, then yes, this objection is good. So for those determinists that affirm that, it's yeah. good. Now, Dr. Moreland, can you address the rest of us? Can we stipulate that? Are we good? All right. Thank you, sir. A passive attempting triggering. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. So several folks have boxed at our use of ed for exhaustive divine determinism. Uh, and they complain that just the word determinism by itself already entails the exhaustive. So they say it's redundant uh, to say exhaustive divine determinism, or as Bill Craig calls it, universal divine determinism. So JP, you and I say ed. Uh, Bill says ud, UDD. We both seem to mean the same thing. Uh, interestingly, I don't see people complaining about Dr. Craig's use of universal divine determinism, but we do. Lots of people have complained. <clears throat> yeah, so yeah. I didn't even know he says that, but just because I didn't know doesn't mean I'm not barking at it. Now that I know, yeah, I'm going to bark at it. <laughs> so thanks. Um, the reason why we're not uh, barking at it is because, uh, at least for me, I didn't know that he used that kind of language. I know some Molinists who are really close to Dr. Craig, and they themselves would probably say, uh, yeah, that's not, that's not exactly. At best, this whole idea, and I say it all the time, and you're going to say the same thing, Bella, is with this redundancy of Ed. Just say that some things are determined and some things are not. That's it. That's all you have to, like, that's all you have to do. That this is, some things are determined, some things are not. Okay, great. You're still an indeterminist when it comes to moral responsibility. And then you can have determinism, determined things rather, sorry, sorry. You can have determined things uh, derivatively. So like the drunk driver who couldn't do otherwise because he non-derivatively made himself so drunk that he couldn't at a later time not steer, uh, steer the wheel, the car away from the murdering some kid or whatever. So he was still uh, derivatively responsible because he made a previous indetermined decision, even though at that time of killing that kid, he was determined to make that decision. You know what that still is? That's still indeterminism. <laughs> it's not non-exhaustive determinism. It, it's just indeterminism. It's, it's incompatibilism. 
Yeah, it'd be the, the example that, I, that, I, that I've started to use is it would be like me saying, <clears throat> we have to say universal material materialism because some of us <laughs> think that some things are material. And so we are all materialists if you think that something is material, but unless, but, but we have to have this qualifier that it's universal material materialism or, for people who think yeah, that all the things are material. Or we can say that, hey, I'm an atheist when it comes to uh, Zeus. I'm a, yeah. I'm a Christian atheist because I'm an atheist with regards to Zeus, but though I'm a Christian with regards to the Jehovah Yahweh God. So yeah. I'm a theist in that sense. You, you see how that's not even remotely helpful, right? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, the a, atheists are actually universal unbelieving atheists, <laughs> rather than just atheists. Like it, it's just it's be, the reason why we do this. Yes, you can have views that some things are determined and some aren't. Yes. Right? That's fine. That yes. that's just part of those views. But in the literature, when you're talking about determinism, or atheism, or materialism, that ism holds a certain concept within the literature. And so if you're going to be engaging with the literature and you're going to be engaged with that term, that's why a bunch of us are saying, look, we can talk about these things and we can all, we can understand what you're talking about. We, we don't think that, that Molinists don't think anything is determined. No one's going to say that. We're not accusing you of saying everything is indeterminate, but you're not determinists, right? And, and the more you do this type of thing, all you're doing is just muddying the waters of, of, the, of the lexography within the field. He's going to say something like, um, I'm not the one muddying the waters. I'm trying to clear the waters for the layman. But then why? Just right. get the layman, just have them be more scholarly. I mean, I'm serious. Just give the relevant literature. Just teach the layman then. Right. Don't just meet them where they're at, but then bring them up. Yeah. And just meet them where they're at and then stay there. And because it actually doesn't full rhetoric. And it actually doesn't help. I, I I pointed this out a lot of times. This this comes up a lot when you're dealing with like historical theology, right? We we teach the layman how certain terms are. So and this comes up in in, in free will, right? So so <clears throat> you know, a lot of a lot of laymen have been taught, well, freedom just is libertarian freedom, all that kind of stuff, or sure, or sure. you know, they, they have certain views of theological terms as we mean them today in the 21st century. You go back and read the early church fathers, and what they do is they see an English translation of that term in the early church fathers, they think that's just what the concept is, and so they anachronistically import it into the early church fathers. Yeah, right? It causes all kinds of problems. You're doing the same thing with the philosophical literature. Yes, now you're saying, okay, well, Ed, you know, you know, Ed is this thing, and determined people can be determinists who aren't actually affirming determinism, all that kind of stuff. Well, or or the atheists do this. Well, atheism is just a lack of belief. It's not actually a philosophical commitment to the to the, to the non-existence of any type of deity. The problem is, is now you've inculcated the the general population into that, and if they do go into the academic literature and they see someone like Russell using the term atheism. They're going to be very, very confused, or they're going to think Russell is actually meaning lack theism because that's what they've been told atheism means now, sure. right? So, so Stratton might be trying to kind of help the laity a little bit, but the problem is, is he's now creating problems if that if that lady now goes to the academic literature, because now they're using a different lex lexicography than what's in the literature. Yeah. So it, it's, it is muddying the water overall in both sides now, because now it, if, if his journal article gets published or if people are starting to interact with his work, now people are going to have to jump through hoops rather than using the standard language within the academic literature. Now they're going to have to kind of 
jump through all these hoops and make a whole bunch of statements to try to clarify what they mean compared to what Stratton means and understanding this type of thing. And it muddies it there, but it's also going to muddy it for the lady when they do try to come up and read uh, the, the literature rather than just using the standard terms. Yeah, one last thing. I, I realize he is also probably going to come back and say, well, I can define it however I want because Van Inwagen says definitions are the philosophy. That's true. That's fine. Do what, what you're want. saying is the, the definition is still not helpful. Find out, however, I mean, uh, Randolph Clark calls semi-compatibilism, uh, Fisher's semi-compatibilism as narrow incompatibilism. Right. I would bark at this. I, I don't think that's helpful. Right. I mean, I guess it's incompatibilistic in some sense, but the primary drive, as Fisher says, it's compatibilistic more often than not, which is what his point is. So to call it narrow incompatibilism is not helpful. And I think Fisher, if I remember correctly, has the exact same critique. And I'm going to say the same thing to Stratton here. You can do that. It Just don't get mad when we bark back. Right. Uh, right. It's a free country. You can, you, <laughs> you can redefine a true as a type, as a species of dog if you want to. I, I mean, it, you, you can do whatever you want. And if you can make a case for it, go for it. But we're, we're just saying that, you know, the, the practicality of it is. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and therefore, the wisdom and the prudence of it is is vanishingly small. Good. As soon as I have the word exhaustive to divine determinism, everyone loses their mind. So I find that a bit inconsistent. But he's anyway. going to say this for a while. I don't know if you want to skip ahead, but yeah, um, he's going to probably bark, talk about uh, Ed redundancy for I don't know how long though. So to merely show that we possess weak libertarian freedom, which is you for saying that, clarifying that for so many people who are following along um, on these topics. Okay. Well, in our paper, uh, you and I distinguish between what we call weak libertarian freedom and strong libertarian freedom. And while you and I both agree that we do possess a strong libertarian freedom, uh, a categorical ability to think and act otherwise on certain occasions in the real world, we suggest that all we need to do for our argument to pass is to merely show that we possess weak libertarian freedom, which is simply the ability to think such that antecedent conditions are insufficient to causally determine or necessitate one's thoughts and ensuing beliefs. Uh, to say it another way, all we have to do is show that at least on occasion when we choose, think, or act, we are not causally determined by something or someone else when we choose, think, or act. Now, this may or not entail a categorical ability, but that's beyond the scope of our project and really irrelevant. It's weird, right? So I kind of want him to start talking because I do have his response. I, okay. Obviously, we both disagree, but... Yeah, well, it's, it, it, it's weird, weird to say that the categorical ability we think is necessary, but our argument is not that the categorical... Like, jettisons the category. Like, it's just... Anyway, we'll, okay, keep going. This is the case that we show that the free thinking argument can be defended without referencing the principle of alternative possibilities. So what would you say, JP, to those who demand that libertarian freedom necessarily entails alternative possibilities or the categorical ability to do otherwise? Well, I say this charitably. I don't mean uh, any offense at this, but they simply have not read the literature by libertarians themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, if you Boston. have read the literature, you False. <laughs> okay. First of all, Moreland himself says that these requirements are necessary Four essential ingredients of libertarian freedom for any person P in some event, I'm quoting, some event or action E, P freely brings about E if P is a substance, active power, P exerts his or her active power as a first unmoved mover, originator, P has the categorical ability to refrain from exerting. That quote is in the uh, Imago Day 44. Now, I also want to quote this. Okay, so hold on tight. In his book, the uh, philosoph well, his co-authored book with Craig, Philosophical Foundations, first edition, page 271. Freedom requires that we have 
the categorical ability to act or at least to will to act. This means that if Smith freely does or wills to do A, he could have refrained from doing or willing to do A, or he could have done or willed to have done B without any conditions, whatever, being different. So, um, <laughs> Kane, in his actual book, his, uh, his new book with uh, Sartario, it's on my shelf over here, he says, Two conditions are necessary. I'm going to pay, paraphrase this one, but he says two conditions are necessary. Ultimate responsibility, which he takes to be sourced, and categorical alternatives. Those are, and then he goes on to say, you can get the page number if you want, but it's in volume one of my reply to Stratton, first chapter, Libertarian Freedom. He goes on to say, many people say that sourcehood is only necessary. He says this is false. And categorical alternatives are also equally necessary. Tempe, who's a source incompatibilist, says sourcehood entails alternatives. Entails it. Right. Why? Because without categorical alternatives, you could not know if you are the source. So with those, Tempe believes in weak alternatives, right? So with those weak alternatives, he's like, ah, that's what makes him the source. Now, he, of course, thinks he's the efficient source. I, in volume one, disagree, and I'll, I'll, I show in volume one to Stratton why I disagree with other Frankfurt-style examples, but at least he says, yes, they're necessary. Seems to be, at least from my perspective, the only incompatibilist libertarians that don't see this connection are them two. Which literature? So if they want to accuse us of not knowing the literature, I gave you three examples, one of which was Moreland's book, granted first edition, oh, but uh, one of which is his book, two right. of two, actually one of which was his book and his co-authored book. I don't understand. Uh, yeah. Bella, do you want to help me out? Like, what am I misunderstanding? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I'm just, this is an example of just, I'm, I'm at a loss, right? Because you, <laughs> not, not only, not only, have have we read a lot of the libertarian literature but if if you're going to say well you you haven't read literature because you know a bunch of, you know they all just say that sourcehood is required sure right well you could be a source compatibilist yeah right? so if all you're saying is that, like like no incompatibilist literature that that i'm aware of again again this is where i would just come back and, and i and i asked this this question from their original one and uh you you mentioned that, that it comes up later you know can can you give I would want Moreland to give the examples, right? Can you give the relevant literature where the incompatibilists are saying the only thing that's needed for libertarian freedom is sourcehood? I want that literature. Where is that? Because yeah. I, I want to know what that is, because to you know, to your point, to 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 what you know, what I've read from others is yes, they're you know the sourcing compatibles are going to say you have sourcehood, but even the sourcing compatibles are going to say there is some other condition, some type of leeway, some type of categorical, some type, some type of something that is needed in conjunction with that. Yes. Uh, yeah. That that's that's the very thing that dis differentiates between source and compatibilists and source compatibilists. Yeah, I mean, um, exactly. Ex yeah. So I also want to do this. Uh, John Lang, famous. Well, in the Molinist community, I yeah. think he's famous, but famous for being a robust Molinist defender. 
-hmm. in personal correspondence with a Molinist friend of mine who sent this over. He's John Lang through a comment that he sent uh, to my Molinist friend says, um, though I would suggest that if one believes that his actions are free, if not caused by anyone, anything other than the agent, which is exactly what they say. Right. Okay? John Lang says he does therefore accept a form of PAP insofar as the ability of the agent to cause his action requires that he have the ability to not act. That is the liberty, the categorical liberty of contradiction. Right. Yeah, it is I, necessary, at least somewhere in their view, somewhere. It could be once, it could be twice, it could be 10 times, and that's it. Somewhere in their view where the categorical is necessary. Right. So yeah. maybe we're talking past each other. I'd like to hope so, but they still need it. Yeah. And, and I think we pointed this out before is that th th this is why Frankfurt cases are relevant, right? Because even though they're not trying to argue, even though not, they're not trying to, to explicate and show what is necessary for, for freedom and responsibility on, on a compatibilistic view, yes. they are trying to show that PAP or some type of hard compatibilism or some type of, of, of necessary leeway condition is not in fact necessary, uh, right? So so it, it, it goes into the kind of cumulative case for, for um, for compatibilism because it's attacking the, one of the fundamental aspects of the opposing view. It's an offensive tactic, not a defensive tactic. Yeah. Um, and I so, think I mean, if we push them and we scratch them and we say, okay, you're saying it's just sourcehood. If we scratch you deep enough, why, why, what accounts for sourcehood? Why is sourcehood? They're going to bleed right. leeway. Yeah. And this is what Tempe says, which is what makes him my favorite incompatibilist because he's honest yeah. with the view. Uh, the last thing, though, I want to say is just reiterate that they themselves must affirm categorical alternatives via the free thinking argument because their own argument says you need the ability. Rationality requires, requires the ability to believe or think true beliefs over false beliefs. Right. So their own brand of libertarian freedom necessitates that. Now, let's be charitable and let's say, well, does it necessitate it all the time? And the answer is no. Right. That's not what we're saying. No, you know what we are saying? That still requires it. And that's exactly what the objection that Stratton read from this kid. And this is what Moreland's responding to. So again, maybe we're talking past each other, but you still need it somewhere non-derivatively. Right. Yes, you can have derivative actions that you don't have leeway. You could be deliberating about whether or not you want to follow God maybe the first couple of months that you're a believer. And then afterwards, it's just kind of habit that you are a believer and now this is your life. So you don't have to deliberate whether or not you want to follow God anymore. So that itself is determined, that action. But you still at one time, given their own leeway ability or their own libertarian view, they still had to, that agent still needed to non-derivatively think truth over false believe god not believe god right all right let's keep going because i want to i want to get to where they start responding to you we're about we're an hour and ten i want to get to that one and then i want to get to the the comment about calvinism that i'd like belly laugh oh at. yeah <laughs> let's do it let's do it another issue that libertarians uh focus on is active power uh and uh that is the power to originate be a source agent without anything determining me doing so 
And a subsequent issue is uh, the reality of alternative possibilities. You, there are a number of libertarians that just focus on active power, and that's sufficient to make the case against compatibilist determinism. Uh, so you don't need to focus on uh, alternative possibilities or categorical ability. I would like to know which ones those are, but uh, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Uh, what do you mean by robust naturalism? And okay, th they talk about naturalism for a while. I'm gonna skip, that. skip that. Yeah, it's not. Um... I, I actually don't agree with their assessment of naturalism either. I don't think it was the strongest interaction with naturalism um, at all. There, there's a certain, there's a certain, well, never mind. I don't, I don't think I want to say that. I don't think <laughs> you can skip it. Yeah. I don't have any uh, skin. In I, th I think there's a certain reason that apologists get a bad rap among naturalists for being somewhat superficial. And I think it kind of showed in spades in this section. Do you remember where they start picking up on yours? Around this round right here, yeah. This, right here. Oh, this is yeah, rather lengthy. This is your question because you, I think you posed them, a, you know, pretty several compound questions. Good job, good job. Yay! I think I think this is yours, and they're going to deal with me from about the twenty-minute mark to about the fifty-minute mark. So almost from me and bouncing from me to Paraboom back and forth okay. for about thirty-ish minutes. Yeah, let's get through. Let's get through a couple of their statements sure. um, because I. Again, I noticed that, like the last one, they the first like ten minutes is just kind of rubber stamped. After that, for the next like twenty minutes. Yeah, exactly. And then I think the forty-one minute mark is when they talk about regeneration, right? Yeah. So yeah, somewhere around. So uh, Colton says that Dirk Paraboom's epistemic openness condition and deliberative efficacy conditions, uh, if true, prove to be sufficient conditions for rational deliberation, even if determinism is true. One need possess metaphysical openness or categorical ability in order to rationally deliberate among options, each of which are compatible with one's cognitive faculties at time t. So that's the end of the first part. So JP, let's, let's call this the paraboom objection to the free thinking argument. And we spilled a lot of ink, three or four pages worth uh, regarding paraboom really? in our paper. What's that? I was oh, just I saying mean, good. I, I'm I congratulating you. Yeah. So without giving away all of the details here, since we still want people to read our paper, what are some general points? Which I, again, I wish that it, it's the second episode of titled the free thinking argument. I really wish they would tell us what this new free thinking argument is uh, they're not going to tell us things that you'd like to make about this paraboom objection in which many people uh, seem to have hanged on their hopes well first of all it, it, it gives uh, ersatz deliberation or pseudo deliberation not the real item uh mm -hmm. in order to, to really deliberate there has to be ontological alternatives that are possible why <laughs> didn't he like th this is again where i'm like the dialogue didn't they just say that their argument doesn't rely on alternative possibilities and categorical ability like Yes, they did. Uh, Tyler, you are absolutely correct. And yet, their own deliberation incompatibilism. Surprise, shocker, because the deliberation and liberation argument that Stratton posits in his book or gives is literally a support system for premise three of his free thinking argument, which that means the deliberation liberation argument bleeds alternatives. The weighing of pros and cons, the categorical contradictory actions. That is alternatives. They need right. a PAP in order to be rationally responsible. That's what they're saying. So yeah, to me, they're contradictory. They're contradicting themselves. Yeah. Which, which by the way, I, I mean, again, not to be overly pedantic or anything, I did an episode responding to Tim Stratton's free thinking argument and showed that he's actually changed his free thinking argument, I don't know, like six times or something like that. And I was talking to him once and he was like, and I, and I, and I made reference to his first premise and he didn't seem to know what his own first premise was. 
And, I, and, and he gave another premise. And I was like, that's not the one that you published in 2015. That's the one, not the one you published in, I think it was 2019. That's not the one that was published in your book. That's not like, so now is this another version of the, of the argument that you have, have hitherto given? Okay. Like I, I it, it like sometimes sometimes it relied on souls sometimes it was just this abstraction about naturalism so like i'm like it's all it's all over the place so when you say he's responded a couple of times saying we're not given the argument but it follows the same you know we talk about the same principles of the argument i want to push back and be like there has yeah. even been a co cohesive singular argument you've given in the past so i'm not i'm really not sure what this is going to look like so that's good and I'll touch on deliberation shortly. If there's only one option ontologically that is that is really possible, then Paragum's entire view, especially his openness condition, is where the so-called deliberator is doing so on the basis of, 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 of believing a falsehood. Mm -hmm. um, because the deliberator isn't saying, well, one of these is already determined, but I don't know which one it is, so I'm going to deliberate about what to do. The, the, the deliberator is saying, I've got several options that I can do, and I'm going to deliberate about which one. I mean, Van Inwagen has this, this little counterexample, in Paragum, and Paragum looks at it where this person's in a room and there are two, two doors and, that are supposed ways out, but one is locked and there's only one way out. Now, in that case, if the person is, is aware of this, he can't deliberate about how he's gonna get out because he knows there's only one way. He can deliberate about which one he'll try, right. but that's a very different thing. Right. So I think that uh, this condition really requires the so-called deliberator to be operating on a false assumption about reality. And that's something that uh, should be rejected. And secondly, Positive. I'm not sure. I, I, so, I mean, this, this, this gets really, really close to open theism. Really close. The, like, um, like very, very close. The idea, the famous two-door case from Vin and Wagon is a mere parenthetical from Vin and Wagon's uh, essay in 1983. And it's kind of funny that it generated this. It's kind of like Kane's dilemma defense in a mere footnote. It yeah. just started out as a footnote and now it's booming yeah. everywhere. Uh, same thing here. He just puts it as a parenthetical and then everyone's about it. <laughs> it's good. So there's two conditions for Perry Boom in uh, his deliberation compatibilism. Number one is epistemic openness. He does give epistemic openness, and he actually thinks it's a pretty, it follows along the definition he gives for deliberation, which we're going to get into a bit. But then he considers in chapter five of his 2014 book, which I think that they're going after, he considers whether or not there are counterexamples to the epistemic openness. And he thinks, and I agree, that Van Inwagen's two-door case is a counterexample. So that's what Marlin is saying. Okay, I agree with you, Marlin. You know how Perry Boom actually patches that up by giving his second condition, deliberative efficacy. So it needs to be efficacious for the agent to make a decision epistemically. And so without getting into the weeds, because they don't really get into much of it, and so I don't want to either, but that's that's how he patches up, which I they deal with the efficacy condition a little bit, but then they just go back to saying, well, it's not ontological, so therefore it's not active. So that none of that's been shown. Right. None of that. Been, so I just wanted to say that, like, I agree so far that the two, that the two-door case damages his epistemic openness, but then he patches up the epistemic openness by tagging on uh, the deliberative efficacy condition. Okay. So I'm not going to quote it. It's in his chapter five or chapter yeah chapter five. That's, I'm sure they know about it, but I just want to say to the audience, I agree so far. We're on the same page. Um, the the paragon deliberator is not, does not engage in real deliberation. Why do I say that? There are four features that are true of real deliberation. As anybody commonsensically knows and thinks about it. If I, if I hear another argument trying to be supported by, well, it's just common sense. Like I'm going to, 
So I don't, I don't think he, uh, I don't think we'll get here uh, in this video, uh, Vela, but he does say around 55 minutes, Stratton gives the question, where are the common sense resources that you apply, uh, appeal to in part one? He did say, forgive me, I don't know them. Moreland does. He, he says, like, I, I just don't know them off the top of my head. I can picture the guy who wrote it, but I, I just, I'm sorry, I don't know. I'll have to come back. And then that's fine. Like, you know, he can't know everything i suppose and that's we don't know everything but the idea is even if he did give a study for the commonsensical notion of deliberation i'm just going to come back with compatible studies that that basically demote those studies that depends on how you frame the deterministic deliberation in the scenario yeah so so <laughs> far it's not good no deliberate uh, for one, like I said, um, when a person is deciding what to do, that person understands uh, that there are real alternative possibilities, and it's up, up to him to decide which one he's going to take. He doesn't uh, think yes, compatibilists agree. It's called strongly receptivity. It's part of guidance control. It's the second. It's the first part, actually, moderate reasons responsiveness. And then there's two, well, three parts to, uh, well, let's just say two. Uh, there's basically two parts to a moderate reasons responsiveness. Strong receptivity to alternatives and then weak reactivity to those alternatives. All of this is compatible with uh, determinism. And if Stratton says it's not because it's guidance control, then he can read my volume two that's going to be published within like the next couple of months. So the idea is this. Strong, the agent is strongly aware of such reasons to do an action. Those reasons exist. Those options exist. Determinism does not by itself rule out that those options exist, just as if I'm walking down a hallway and there are certain doors impassable to me, though I don't know that they're locked, they're just locked. Does that mean that the doors itself don't exist? No, it's that the some doors unbeknownst to me are inaccessible to me. Right. But the doors exist just as if in a deterministic scenario, the those options, those reasons exist and the agent is aware of them. So they can be aware of those reasons. The issue of determinism is not that he's not aware of those reasons or that alternative options don't exist or available in that sense. The idea of determinism is that those options are inaccessible to that agent categorically and just because i say that those options are strongly receptive to the agent or are exists or are epistemically available does not entail that those same options are therefore ontologically uh, or sorry epistemically uh, inaccessible at best it entails as any determinist would agree that they're metaphysically inaccessible but so what? We already concede that. That's what the definition of determinism is. Right. You need to show that they're epistemically inaccessible, but they're not. Right. And so therefore it's unscathed. And so these little small details are what makes or breaks the argument. And if they want to skip past the details from someone who's published it, Fisher, Moderate Reasons Responsiveness, literally like 25 years ago, then that's unfortunate because it's the number one leading gold standard compatibilist uh, view today. So we can say everything that they say and still hold to Perry epistemic condition. The options exist. They're just not uh, accessible categorically. Right.
Right. And, and, and the issue again, where I'm going to come at for, for, you know, for, from the polemics of this is anyone watching this from Stratton and, and Moreland who haven't read all the literature, they're going to hear all this and be like, Oh, well, well, yeah, then like, it, it's just, it, it, it verges on negligent uh, to just act as if none of this literature, none of these arguments, none of these positions exist. Like as if no one has said any of these things. Let's see what else he has. That once closed, that I, I don't know what it is, so I can still deliberate, even though not, there's no point in it. Um, this the second thing is that he, he calls uh, he talks about the efficacy of deliberation, but but actually there is no efficacy of deliberation because deliberation is again an active voice term, yeah. and uh, that is smuggled in to make Haraboom's account seem more intuitive. That's the response is nah. -uh. <laughs> this is what I mean. So yay, they deal with the uh, second condition efficacy, but what's their response? Oh, it's not incompatibilist. Yeah, we agree. Of course it's not incompatibilist. The argument's not an incompatibilist argument. So if you want it to be incompatibilist, then you have to show why that incompatibilist indeterministic mechanism is indeed necessary. That's the thing. Periboom shows, at least to my satisfaction, that that is what is necessary. It fits with the definition of deliberation. As we're going to see, it doesn't fit with their definition, but it's a small matter. It doesn't matter to me. But it, he does show, I think, quite convincingly and effectively that, yes, this epistemic openness, which and then the, the options being settled for the agent, and this is real second uh, condition, and then his other big condition is the deliberative efficacy, which he posits to get around uh, in, in Wagon's two-door case. I think all of that is compatible with determinism, and it fits. And so what is their response? Nuh-uh. It's the intuition problem. I'm not saying he did it on purpose. Right. But what's really going on is that there is a causal chain of events that began prior to the outside the agent and uh, outside the person and runs through him as a passive train of events. And whatever you want to mark off as the stage of quote deliberating, it's just a series of passive events that began in a, from a chain that was completely outside of his control. So he is having a a, a process of, of passively receiving a series of thoughts that are not actually deliberations at all. They're they're just passive activities. Uh, like Cyril says, I'm not a determinist. So if you ask me, you know, what do I, do I want coffee or not? I don't sit around and wait until I just see what I'm going to do. I don't what I'm going to do. The third thing is that deliber real deliberation has intrinsic imminent teleology. We deliberate for the sake of reaching the best or most rational or true conclusion. Right. So deliberation is done teleologically. Pause. So first of all, his second point we've already addressed that doesn't follow if there's activity in compatibilism, which they just, to me, beg the question again, so it doesn't matter. And so if they then use that, if they, if they first beg the question about it with regards to weak flickers and then use that same thing and with uh, their defense of it, I'm just going to say the defense doesn't work because you didn't even prove it back then. Right. So that's, that's why I'm not going to spend too much time on that. But the third one is he's literally, he's literally saying that deliberation is efficacious for the agent. Guess who agrees? Just take a while. Yeah. <laughs> Perry Boom. Perry Boom agrees. It's why he has that condition. And just by saying uh, that, oh, yeah, it's not an efficacious kind of incompatibilist view or incompatibilist principle, so I don't accept it, doesn't negate the fact that still under incompatibilism, it is efficacious for the agent. That's why he has that view. So it's, again, what a letdown. I don't, they're just, they're talking past each other because I don't think they're engaging properly with what that Paraboom actually says. Yeah, no, it, it's, they're not even, they're not even touching it. it it's 
yeah this, this is why i just as this went on for me it just like snowballed and i just got more and more like this is <laughs> yeah let's go yeah. i don't know the efficient causal chains do not have imminent teleology yeah. so the causal chains for example that run from outside uh through a, a machine uh the machine moves in such a way that the designer can act as if they're moving for the sake of a certain end for which you design the machine so they can be taken as teleological but they really aren't they're just efficient causes and so the deliberator is not engaging in effect so this was weird to me for for a couple of reasons. One of them, uh, machines don't have agency, so whatever. We'll we'll skip past that point. But all, but but just even at, at a more basic level, machines don't have teleology, right? Like like surely, there there are machines have maybe not all, but certain machines have functions and teleology and purposes and directionality. Do they? Like, yeah. I, this was so weird to me because I was like, even on even on fully determined cases where we agree that there's no agency, like I can think of lots of examples of where machines have teleology and directionality and, and, and for sure. I, like, I don't under, I don't understand. Like, I, I just didn't even understand this critique. At, it at depends on how we are determined, right? As any good compatibilist would ever say, which is why they, I think are so flippant with it, but any good Christian Calvinist compatibilist, let's just say, is going to say we have a certain teleology teleology and that is our teleology is to respond to evidence and what's given to us and if you want to call that passive i would reject that i think at best it's a formal cause like we're still intentional in our in our activity because god determines things differently yeah he doesn't just add a chessboard and moves a pawn and then the pawn moves that's not that's not how he determines. So if that's what they mean, then I guess I'm inclined to agree, but not even determinists, at least not the scholarly ones, the academic ones who are well-read in the, the Reformed Orthodox, they're never going to say that, no. ever. In fact, uh, Peter Furlong, uh, who just uh, recently wrote a book called The Challenges of Divine Determinism, he even says that. He's an indeterminist, incompatibilist. He even says that, no, no determinist is going to say that. And so we shouldn't say that because it's an internal critique. They do have teleology. They do have rational deliberation. They are agents. Right. He's not even a determinist. He wrote a whole book about how he wants to weigh the pros and cons of determinism. And then he realizes, oh, it's not worth it. But yet he doesn't say that we don't have any teleology because it's not a good argument. Right. Right, but, but but I guess I guess my issue is just again even further even further back than that. Like I said, like e even when we're not talking about freedom, I mean, we, when we talk about you know the the, the four ca causes and the teleological cause, yeah, like we, how many times do we use that in 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 cases where where agency and freedom and deliberate they're not even involved? Sure. Right, and so he would have to be saying, well, they don't have. You know the tele the teleology that's necessary for for personal freedom and responsibility. But then when it but then at that point, you would have to give independent reason why that's the case. And it seems like the only reason he would give is because it's determined. But then that would just be to beg the question of incompatible. Like I like I I just I, I'm I'm at a loss for how that's even a valid criticism. That I, I I guess I'm just I I don't I don't even follow the argument. We can uh, see what more he says. Um, active deliberation because he's not actively doing it for the sake of an imminent teleological end. And then finally, uh, the, the, the agent is not actively deliberating because the agent isn't involved at all. That's understanding compatibilism is consistent with there not being an agent. 
Yeah. In fact, an awful lot of physical, uh, naturalist uh, compatibilists don't believe in a self or agent of any kind. And even if you believe in a soul, the soul is not involved in, in compatibilist processes. Mm -hmm. like, this just verges on dishonest, right? Yeah. Like, 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 so you, again, Moreland might think that if compatibilism is true, then by some argument not given, it entails that agency is circumvented. But he hasn't given that argument. He hasn't proven that. They typically do. Because no compatibilist says that. That's not our view. In fact, the gold standard of compatibilism today, John Martin Fisher and Mark Revisa, has written a whole book. Their first chapter is about securing personhood and the locus of agency in our deliberations while still being compatibilist and determinism being true. They've written a whole book on it. A whole book. So I, I get it. He's coming, uh, Moreland's coming maybe from a philosophy of mind standpoint or philosophy, like from the soul, right? And he, I understand because he's probably some, uh, he's, well, I know, he's a substance dualist and he's going to think that substance dualism entails some sort of libertarian freedom. Stump doesn't think so. So she's devised a Frankfurt style example that Mol that's compatible with Molinism. That doesn't uh, demand you to give up your idea of Cartesian substance dualism. She actually says that in her article, that you can be a substance dualist, not have any uh, alternatives while deliberating and still it's compatible with Molinism. That's like, I mean, they should be writing a paper on that. I just gave them their whole next paper. Uh, but the idea is you have to give up the free thinking argument then. Yeah. <laughs> it's unfortunate. Versus the action of the body movement, let's say, or the concluding thought is not the agent, right? The series of mental states that led up the efficient causal chains to the obta passive obtaining of that quote unquote conclusion. And so uh, it, it is just wrong to talk about agents. Right. Agents, but, even if there are such, have nothing whatsoever to do with uh, compatibilist chains and quote unquote conclusions. Yeah, in my book, I uh, represent as a, reference, a human on that view is nothing more than a bag of beliefs, none of which are up to the bag. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, gross. Bags aren't, bags aren't agents or people to begin with. Uh, it's gross. Uh, it's, it's, it's just board, yeah, borderline dishonest. It's it's absolutely terrible what kind of rhetoric, to be honest with you. Yeah. Paradigms work for a while, and several individuals, when first exposed to the free thinking argument, really made a big ruckus about Parabon's work. So uh, back then I, I carefully looked it over and I immediately noticed that uh, Parabon uh, seems to be discussing something completely different than what uh, the free argument is really focused upon. So at that time, I didn't even think Parabon's case was in need of interaction, but I kind of knew the same. So <laughs> to, to my surprise, uh, many determined seem to think otherwise that, I, that we needed to interact with Parabon. So as I told you, when we decided to work on this paper together, uh, we had to take down the so-called Parabon objection. And on this topic, JP, I got to tell you, uh, you really shared some keen insights. Uh, our paper offers, I think, at least four reasons to judge the Parabon objection as a failure. Now, like I said, I don't want to give too much of our paper away in this video. So I'll quickly note that Colton's claim here uh, this is the mark of our argument's intent. Our, our argument is not primarily focused on the issue of metaphysical openness and categorical abilities. Now, that may or may not follow from what we argue. But by the way, weird to say, well, <clears throat> your work that was published, or, or, you know, or you know, put it put out prior to their unreleased paper doesn't interact with their unreleased paper. How dare you, Colton? How dare you? Uh, it, it's also I want to also point out like. He doesn't. He didn't think that Perryman was relevant. My goodness. My. I don't. I'm. I really mean this respectfully and honestly and loving. I don't understand. I. I don't understand. I don't get it. I don't. I do not get it. He literally argues against deliberation incompatibilism. That is, 
someone who believes in deliberation and determinism, those two beliefs are incompatible. That's literally what Stratton argues for in his book. And so, of course, the person who has the complete antithesis to that is relevant, like just definitionally relevant. And so then he's going to say, oh, well, he deals with epistemic openness and I deal with metaphysical. doesn't matter. It does, he says that all that's necessary for deliberation, for rational deliberation, is the epistemic openness. You are saying the bar is up here. He's saying the bar is down here. So to meet moral responsibility, you're saying, oh, I need metaphysical openness, all of this. He's saying, no, 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 you just need this. In other words, you need all of that. All you need is this. The right. bar is so low that everyone can meet it even compatibilist and so that is relevant right completely relevant it's so much so it actually defeats the free thinking argument because if he's right and the deliberation and liberation argument that stratton gives in his book to defend premise three if that's gone the premise three is undefended so therefore the free thinking argument is false or at least at best undefended which is exactly what he should be trying to do right defend it i just don't get it Tyler, I don't get it. <laughs> Again, that's why I said I, don't, I only made it through about 45 minutes without just being like, ah, I'm, I'm done. He, they, get, they say a couple more things. Um, we'll see what they have to say a little bit. Yeah, I think, there, I think there's like a like like four more minutes of uh, of relevant stuff, and then it rambles, and then we can go to the, the kind of or yeah, not, maybe not rambles. It repeats. They say they quote they continue to quote my stuff just for background for those who haven't watched it. They continue to quote my actual objection that was really my objection i don't see how they touch Perryboom's work at all they just presuppose incompatibilism so hooray but uh then they start talking about my other stuff that kind of went around the objection and then they just say they're normal free thinking stuff uh question begging inactivity common sense goal into it like it's just the same stuff so we'll see how much more they have to say but then yeah we can continue but rather the pre-thinking argument is laser focused on the foundational problem of being completely deterministically mind controlled by something or someone else, you know, nature or nature's God. No one, no one argues for mind control. Especially something non-rational or someone who is untrustworthy. So now let me just. No one says God is untrustworthy. Yeah, so I actually, um, here I, it is so frustrating um, when he just puts the words in your mouth. You know what I'm saying? Like, when did I say, that God was untrustworthy. He thinks that determinists think that, you know, God is an untrustworthy thing. Again, he's failing at an internal critique. You say that un uh, under our view, God is untrustworthy because he determines uh, falsehood, belie believers to believe false things, false theological affirmations. So then you say, oh, that makes him a deity of deception, as if producing deception is the same thing as being deceptive, which is not. And then he goes on and then barks at us for believing in a God that's untrustworthy? No, none of that follows. If you follow the Franker style actual sequence events, none of that follows. That's right. None of that. I'm trying I'm trying to bring up a document where I have where I have some some counterexamples here. Um uh, no, it's not gonna open. Um I think Sorry, uh I'm trying to find this uh where I have I want I wanna just divert for a second on this because I, I don't want to go through like like the entire section where he does this but he he seems to th the whole like deity of deception thing 
Yeah. Right. He he wants to he wants to say that. Um, where is it? I think this is it. It was my opening statement that I had uh, in my debate with Dan Chapa. So he, he was, what's that? Which was good. I did watch it. So. Oh, thank you. He he wants to he wants to argue that if if God ever determines someone to have a false belief, somehow that makes you a de that makes God a deity of deception. Yeah, and right? he's untrustworthy. And he's and he's untrustworthy and all this kind of stuff, right? And I've and I've warned him of this before, and I get that he doesn't actually think God is this way, but like it verges on blasphemy. One of the things I like not not to name drop others is is someone like uh, like Mike Winger. Mike Winger used to be much stronger in his polemics against uh, like Calvinism stuff, but in, in various conversations, he's moved away in some private conversations he's had with me. He said, look, I've gotten to the point where, and, and Braxton Hunter said this too. He's, he's like, I've gotten to the point where I'm not going to accuse God on other uh, views of being evil because I could be wrong. And if I'm wrong, Right. I, he's like, if I'm wrong, it's more likely that I'm wrong on my non-Calvinistic views than I am on my theism. And if and if I'm wrong, I'm blaspheming. I, I'm just I'm just flat out. I'm just flat out committing blasphemy. And I would rather not do that. So I, so I'd rather say, look, I, I think there's this problem. It can create some moral issues and all that kind of stuff. But I'm not going to say that it makes God evil or makes God a deity of deception, all this kind of stuff on these other views, because what if the Calvinist is right? Right. What, what if it's right? And, and I and I pointed out a couple of times and I brought this up in my opening statement. We have Bible verses that at least seem to indicate that God does in some way take credit for or flat out say he causally brings about people to have false beliefs. Right. Um, you know, some some of the examples I give, like Revelation 17, 17, where God where, where expressly says God, quote, puts it into the hearts to execute his purpose. And then when it, when it, when it says what that purpose is, it's quote, giving their kingdom to the beast. Right. So when we say, okay, why did they do this sinful evil thing? These Kings of giving the kingdoms to the beast. It's because God expressly put it in their hearts to do so. Right. To have this false belief that it's good for them to give their 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 to, to you know to give their their kingdoms not to God but to the false prophet to the beast, right? Yeah. Does that make God a deity of deception? No, right? Or or in Second Thessalonians two eleven through twelve, where it says, "Quote for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence, so that they will believe what is false," right? They, you know, they want to explain it away as God allows it all. But the language is God is active. He is sending them. He is sending upon them a deluding influence for the express purpose. So that it's the henna clause so that they will believe what's false. Why? What's the teleological outcome in order that they may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in weaknesses. So, so God actually intentionally deludes them for the purpose of judging them. That's right. Right. Does that God, does that make God a deity of deception? Right. So, so I, I want to just con caution Tim that even if you think a belief is false, 
even if you say, well, it seems to entail things where we might struggle understanding the holiness of God, given that going full bore and saying, oh, it makes God a deity of deception. I understand the, the, the rhetorical like punch of that, but like, brother, yeah. you, you are, you are veering strongly into, you're getting super, super close to blasphemy. I know you don't think that it's true, but there's a reason why I also, when I'm talking to Arminians and stuff, I don't say, oh, well, your God is like a, a limp-wristed whatever, because I don't want to blaspheme God because it's more likely the case that that I'm incorrect on that than I am incorrect on my theism anyways. Yeah, I think that's that's a fantastic point. I, I agree. The idea is that Tim's trying to say is, you know, it's God is untrustworthy given Calvinistic determinism, and so therefore... The, de the determining mechanism is unreliable that he says that actually a lot he said that in his rejoinder too and he uses a couple of thought experiments like the voting thought experiment um the dominion voting thought experiment whatever i won't get into it but the idea is this we can show that the deity of deception and show that god is trustworthy just by showing him underneath compatibilism that the mechanism is reliable why because you know, modus solen. If he says that the that God is untrustworthy, that entails that the mechanism, the determining mechanism, is unreliable. Well, then, if the determining mechanism is reliable, then that means God is trustworthy. That He's not deep deception, and He's all powerful and maximally great, like they want to say. And compatibilism does that. Yeah, compatibilism does that. It's called moderate reasoned responsibleness. So I agree everything with everything you say. This contrary Paradigm's position to those who are new to the conversation. Uh, Paradigm is what's called a, a free will skeptic. And this view says that the idea of free will, uh, both compatibilist and libertarian accounts are likely false. And more importantly, that giving up the belief in free will is not devastating to the notions of agency and morality. So according to Paradigm and company, one can rationally deny libertarian freedom and free will in general and continue to live a normal and meaningful life. And so to that, I have a couple of things to say. Uh, first, if living a normal and meaningful life means that you believe that non-rational or untrustworthy causes determine all of your thoughts and beliefs all the time, then sure, if that's normal and meaningful, then you know, have that. But I don't think most people are going to yeah. Not, I, I was just going to say it's not untrustworthy. They haven't shown that premise yet. Yeah. And that's not Paraboom's view. He's trying to summarize Paraboom's view. That's not Paraboom's view. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they're reading from their article, which is fine because I can see Stratton's eyes kind of drift. So maybe he's reading from something or maybe post or a pre uh, recording notes. I don't know. But that's, yeah, that's not his view. So he got everything else right, but that's not what he says. So neither do theological determinists, either of the hard variety or soft variety like us he's obviously a hard theological determinist we're a soft theological determinist and so neither it doesn't fall on either view yeah moreover for the sake of argument suppose that we grant that giving up libertarian freedom is not devastating to our notions of morality which i think is absurd uh, absurd but i'll grant it for the moment but jp you and i argue quite effectively if i don't say so myself uh, that if one affirms exhaustive determinism then it does devastate our notion of rationality at least the kind of rationality we're wanting now by, by deliberation the way i understand paradigm's understanding is that deliberation is an active mental process whose goal or tell us is to figure out from among a number of alternative options what would be the best for one to do and i would add more importantly what would be the best for one to believe and i don't think that gets the proper attention that you and i are bringing attention to it but moreover the process of deliberation according to paradigm can but doesn't have to include the weighing and evaluating of reasons and to that i say not so fast if for example god causally determines all things with exhaustive divine determinism is true then all of one's mental processes are passive as opposed to active as you noted earlier uh, by that he, yeah, he does say, and I will give credit to Tim, he does say in his definition of determinant or a deliberation paradigm that it is deliberation is the idea of active mental process whose aim is to figure, I'm quoting here, 
whose aim is to figure out what to do among a number of distinct, i.e. mutually incompatible alternatives. So I take that to mean the liberty of contradiction, uh, though not categorical, conditional, epistemically. A process understood as one that can, and then he says, and Tim Stratton quotes him here, but need not include the weighing and evaluating of reasons and options. So Tim's basically barking the tree saying, oh, his definition doesn't really fit with what we want. So what? He does go on in that uh, same kind of couple paragraphs, actually, right after he gives a definition of deliberation, to say that that definition is actually compatible with Kaufman, Warfield, Wagon, and Serrell. He goes to show that that definition of deliberation is compatible with those incompatibilists, those deliberation incompatibilists. So he says, I think it's a pretty good definition. Now, if Tim comes back and says, no, 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 he needs to take out the but need not clause. Deliberation must include, rational deliberation must include the weighing and evaluating of, re fine, easy edit. Take it out. His epistemic openness, his deliberative e efficacy still follows. <laughs> like, it's not a critique to say that not so fat. Okay, great. Take it out. Fine. Moving on. You know, like yep. it's just so elementary to me. You're just picking at his words, not right. his ideas. And that's the, that's the problem. Right. And we discussed this in our paper. And ensure all of one's mental processes are determined by God, then the human passive cog, as it were, uh, might be determined to experience a subjective sensation of activism, <laughs> the sensation of attempting to figure things out. But objectively and ontologically speaking, this is only a subjective illusion imposed upon a passive cog. The problem is we don't care about the ontological. <laughs> so he's like, he's like, but that's not what we're talking about. That's not what Perry Boom's talking about, and you're the one dealing with his argument, right? So you need to show from his argument what he means, and then show why it's false, right? And um, and every time he says, you know, it, it, every time he says the problem is what follows is if we assume our view, then look how dumb that is. Like, but we don't agree with your view. You need to prove that. That's what we keep asking you to do is to prove your view. You can't just be like, well, the, the problem is, is then that the, you're not able to deliberate. What well, that exactly what you're supposed to be proving you can't just say well the problem is our view is true we we could say be charitable just a little bit and say okay maybe it's Boom who has the burden of proof so then they're on the defense they say no that doesn't work because we think ontological openness is actually what's necessary for uh deliberation then they may give like a cut like the two-door case or maybe a different case or whatever now i go okay so then epistemic openness is not true then the burden shifts to them. How right. can they prove their ontological uh, uh, openness is necessary for deliberation without begging the question and going around in circles? And they just say that it, that it does. There needs to be a dialectical framework. And he spends a good portion of that chapter putting his response in the dialectical framework from other incompatibles and compatibles who have come before him. Been in Wagon, Cyril, Kaufman, Warfield, Capitan, Nelkin, and then he adjusts their view, concedes what needs to be conceded, and then argues for what needs to be argued to patch up other compatibilist views. His is the gold standard deliberation compatibilism. To simply say, oh, ontological necessity is not in it, so therefore it's wrong, is literally to bastardize the view, to give it completely wrong as to it's, I'm, I don't know. It's almost not worthy of a response, but I guess here we are. <laughs> I'm, I'm, 
they say much uh, more on it. Yeah. Do you do you think there's much more in here, or do you want to go to the the? I can't remember. Yeah, I was just thinking about. I can't remember. I know they talk more about my actual. I'm sorry if you can hear my kid That's like going to town at the back, but uh, um, they go a little bit more into detail with what I say around the case. But then Stratton just keeps saying like they go a little bit more into blameworthiness and how I can hold someone blameworthy for thinking things and you know. Moreland, that's the, the very beginning of this episode. Then he says, well, that's just so bad. And to me, it's trivial. Like yeah. it, you hold people blameworthy all the time. And then they say something like, oh, we're just doing our best and following the evidence. Yep. Conditionally, right? <laughs> not categorically. So all of it, it's, it's kind of just kind of um, rolling through what we've already said. So if you want to go to around, yeah, 41 minutes, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's right around here. Yeah, I mean this this entire I mean that's what like almost almost ten minutes, where it really is just kind of ad nauseum repeating the same things that they've been saying. The 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 same. Well, if you if if you follow a deity of deception and you're a passive cog, it, it's just it's that same thing over and over and over. And yeah. Over. So he uh, Morland says something very interesting here at forty one minutes that so we're gonna try to. Uh, yeah, Vela, you're gonna go to town on it, right? Yeah, I, mean, I think this is enough to lead in. And uh, I'll just focus on the whole issue of trying again. Mm -hmm. um, trying is an endeavor. It's trying to bring it about that. It is an, an exercise in the power. There are no tryings in a, in a deterministic, exhaustively. Which we're already there. He's about to say something. So I, I the, the one, I'm going to say why this is so funny afterwards. But one of the reasons why I think this is so funny is a long time ago when I was at Moody Bible Institute, the name you can trust, right? Uh, so... JP Moreland came and he did, you know, they had the, the, um, I think it was the EPS conference was there. I think that's why he was there. And he came and gave a chapel message. Now people don't realize Moody is, uh, is very, very dispensational, but it's also very, very Calvinistic, which is an yeah. interesting thing to have at, at a, at a, at a dispensationalist seminary, uh, or, or Bible college. So he comes and he comes from Biola. He's at Talbot, which is like the sister school, the exact opposite, very dispensational, but very, very, you know, Ar Arminian. Yep. So he, I, I don't know if he didn't know that most of Moody was, was Calvin and his entire chapel message was like anti Calvinism. And it was hilarious because you could see like all of the, all of the professors, like not squirming their seats, but they were all just like, Oh my gosh. Oh my God. Like it, 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 and it wasn't, I don't remember what his arguments were, but it, it was like the kind where you're like, these aren't even like good. They're just, they're just kind of jabs at it. It was just, it wasn't a good, it wasn't that. So it, it's also one of the reasons why I think I just haven't really read that much of Moreland. Cause I was like, man, I mean, whatever. So, sure. so he's going to, that, that's like the background. Like I have that in my background, like my, my one interaction with him on Calvinism. And then, and then this comes, it's somewhat funny. Deterministic world. And that's why, uh, Calvinist interpretations of certain texts imply who can resist as well, uh, and you have to be regenerated before you can believe. And it's not really you believing anyway. It's a God producing a belief in you. So I don't even think there could be endeavorings or trying. Well, if you knew determinism was true, what's the point of trying? Uh, because uh, whether you're going to try or not is determined, and that really depends on not acting on. That's right. So I, I, the only reason I, I like belly laughed at this, because anyone who knows Stratton's overall goal of mere molinism one of his one of his main goals is to open molinism up to to reformed and calvinistic thinkers yep right? moreland just slammed that door shut right he, he basically said look 
you you can't you can't do that, right? You you cannot have right if you have Calvinism, you you cannot have this type of libertarian. You can't have deliberation. You can't have like a, 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 at least not about. And you brought this up in 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 your two horns where where you're like, look, if 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 Stratton wants to keep pressing these arguments. If he wants to make it open to Calvinists, he has to give up his his argument. If he wants to open it, if he wants to deny Calvinists, he needs to stop this whole endeavor to, to open up to Calvinists. I think more than slammed the door like you did on that second on that second door and said you you can't keep opening up this this you know free thinking you know mere moralistic type of things to Calvinists. They just it just doesn't work. And you can kind of see Tim's face like he's like. Crenshaw's been anything. That's, that's right. That's right. It's, it was just, it, it was just, it was a poignant moment for me in this. In this yeah, I, I think that's everyone again sees this to be true. At least uh, those who are even remotely um, familiar with the literature, that you can't have Molinism, uh, libertarian freedom, and middle knowledge, and also irresistible grace. You just cannot. You yeah. can't. And I push it so far back in the mental substrate, just like what Stratton barks at. It's not the physical, it's the mental that I'm concerned with. It's rational or something. Okay. So you push the, 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 the irresistible determining mechanism all the way back in the mental substrate. Could the agent, while being saved, do otherwise? Could they believe or not believe? Well, if it's irresistible grace, the idea is they could not not believe. So in other words, they had to believe. So alternative possibilities mental alternative possibilities the freedom to will or think otherwise is not there so is he rationally responsible or no if he is you just gave up the free thinking argument if he's not well then you have to you just kicked your calvinist friends underneath the bus just like what moreland's doing here yeah. so that's fine you can go to that horn but then your whole project of mere molinism fails yeah. so yeah uh so i want to i want to go to you said it was like the 55 mark yeah it was around 55 minutes i think it was like the last question that they went after and they talked they finally said your question about common sense views so i so i want to bring this up just one time not just to vindicate myself or anything but that, that, that's always fun <clears throat> but because we see this over and over again um and i brought this out so many times is that a lot of libertarians will say, oh, this is the common sense view. This is the folk view. This is this is this is intuition. But then when you press them to defend that, they never do. And the one the, the very few. So I don't want anyone to think that we're saying that we're also not aware that there aren't studies that that do show that the libertarian view is a common it is a common view among people. Right. What we're going to say is that there have been other studies after those ones that have come out, like in the Cambridge Reader, there's the in, in Frontiers Inn, there's the Forget the Folk, These there's meta studies that show that when you actually take in all the studies on folk views and intuitive views of freedom, all that kind of stuff, it actually, it, it's not a simple case of the folk view just is libertarian freedom. Yeah. Right. What all the literature shows, what all the studies show is the folk view is complicated exactly and they're all over the map and there isn't this thing called the folk view or the intuitive view it really the, and, and and even within the same person the same person doesn't even have the same intuitions about it and it shows that under different circumstances depending on how you phrase the question ask the question what you kind of you know uh, prime the pump of their thinking with ahead of asking the question 
all those things matter and people's intuitions is really, really flexible. Um, and, and it's, and it's all over the place. There isn't this thing such as the folk view. So they can't use when they're trying to say, oh, well, we're, we're just going to kind of rubber stamp our view as the folk view. It's the intuitive view. This is the basic assumption. No, it's not. And if you're going to claim that you need to be able to defend it. And when people start asking you for sources, especially when this, this is what was frustrating for me. I hope they update this paper before it gets published. They said, if I remember right, they said that they defend it in their paper. Do you remember that? Vaguely. I, I vaguely remember. And it could have been, it could have been when I asked the question, maybe it was maybe Stratton or, or someone said that it was defended in the paper, that it wasn't just asserted. I was like, you can't just assert it as the common sense. Do you have the papers to defend it? They said, oh, we defended the paper. You, you may be right. It sounds uh, like something they would say, but but you can't just you can't just assert it. So I asked for sources. Sure. Right. With the ontological openness and actual efficacy of deliberation, and you avoid a, a, a contradiction only by holding two other false beliefs, so that your these aren't understood ontologically; they're only understood epistemically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we do have four reasons uh, to think that the paradigm objection to the briefing argument is a, uh, that it fails at the end of the day. Uh, they'll be in our paper, so stay tuned for that. And I just want to thank Colton for his informed and thoughtful uh, and long objection. <laughs> thank you for sending it our way. Colton, I, I want you to know I sincerely appreciate you, brother. And your informed pushback really has helped to solidify uh, this argument. So thank you. Um, so let's shift gears. Uh, we'll start to wrap things up. Um, Tyler Bella, another uh, friend of mine, a hardcore um, Calvinist and exhaustive divine determinist, he says, I don't affirm exhaustive divine determinism. So <laughs> also funny. not. A hardcore Calvinist. All right. Okay. He said that I have like a following on Facebook. I don't. Do you see my ducks following me, Bella? Because I I don't I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> to be honest. Anyways, Tim, after watching our first video, it says Tim, can you provide or ask Moreland to give you these studies that he referenced that demonstrate that libertarian freedom is a property? Or I'm sorry, is a properly basic belief, let alone the folk view. So refresh my memory, Dippy. Uh, but not only did you make a passing comment in our last video regarding these studies, but you actually argued. The libertarian freedom is a properly basic belief, right? I mean, you, you actually point out the difference in our experience between passive yeah. thought and active thought. So what do you have to say? Right. Um, there was an article in a, a multi-ended book that was published by uh, two guys at Purdue. And, and I can picture this guy. He's a short guy. He's got a beard. His brother taught Old Testament at Dallas Seminary. And for the life of me, I, I mean, I read this a while back. I'm embarrassed to say I can't get his name back. <laughs> but if you were to look at the, you know, the names of their faculty and some of the Old Testament across at Dallas, uh, then you could maybe uh, look up his publications. Okay. Um, uh, they, they cite evidence that when they present libertarianism and fabulism, in their initial form to uh, classes that 90% who don't know anything about it are, are saying, well, that's not freedom. Right. This is this is what we mean by it. And then there was a study, I think, done by the APA. But again, I'm a, I, I am embarrassed to say that I don't have off the top of my head those studies. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I think it would be easy, might be easy to find some if you Googled it. Yeah. Um, studies that show that the common sense view is that libertarian freedom or that libertarian freedom is a part of folk, folk psychology. So anecdotal from a bunch of other libertarian like themselves who present, I mean, if they present compatibilism, like these two gentlemen, fine gentlemen present compatibilism, no wonder their students are like, well, that's not freedom because I mean, how many times have we had to say, well, that's not our view. That's not our view. That's not, that's not, yeah, what that's not, I like, think, um, that's a good point. So first of all, he will say in a bit that it is, um, what do you say? It was uh, anecdotal. So he will actually say like the last line of before they wrap everything up, they will say, yeah, it is anecdotal, but anecdotal stuff can be evidence. So just FYI, they do say that. But I think that I know, the two uh, individuals, I don't know, but I think the two individuals that they were referring to are uh, Joshua Noby and Sean Nichols. 
they are probably the most prominent or well-known in the philosophical literature for having this study showing that incompatibilist intuition is the right one, that we all come to the table with incompatibilist intuitions. They proved it back like, I don't know, around 2000, early 2000s, mid 2000s or whatever. Yeah. The problem though, is that for others, Namias and Turner and then uh, Jason Turner and a few others, Eddie Namias and Jason Turner and a few others, they came back and said, no, that's wrong because it depends. One of the reasons it depends is exactly what you said, Tyler, is that if they asked like their students, uh, for instance, who like given a scenario, given a deterministic scenario, who's going to be responsible? Is the person responsible? And, you know, Novi and Nichols are saying, well, no, they're not. My students say that they're not. Even Stratton is saying in a bit, he's, he will say that my students don't think that determinism is the uh, intuitive view or that compatibilism is the intuitive view. You know what the problem is? Eddie Namias actually proves and says the problem is that they themselves are representing determinism wrong. That they're representing determinism in the form of bypassing, circumvention, using words, buzzwords like cause or mad scientist or uh, beyond your control. Like those kind of buzzwords that make someone think like, oh, well, that, that's not, that's not, oh, that's gross. I don't want, so therefore they're not morally responsible. Eddie Namias has a brilliant essay in the Oxford Handbook, second edition Oxford Handbook of Free Will. And he shows this. He actually takes Noby and Nichols' view, which I'm assuming that's what Moreland, who is Moreland, is talking about. And he shows that they're wrong, that it is complicated, like you said, and that it actually honestly depends on how you frame the determinist scenario. And if you frame it how determinists are supposed to be framed without bypassing, then actually a large majority, about 70 to 60%, sometimes up to 80% say, no, they're responsible, even though they're in the deterministic universe. What do you say to that? Yeah, I think, yeah, I, so I was gonna show, uh, I'm gonna bring this over here and, and show this. So this this is this is the forget the folk, right? This this is uh, uh, article. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, this is from 2019, um, and and it's really a meta-analysis of a of a whole bunch of these studies, right? It's not it, it's it, so they they go through and they 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 talk about a bunch of things, but there's a there's a couple of findings in here um, that I think are are interesting, um, you, and you can see their 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 conclusion right after the general discussion is there's there's all these problems that arise like their like their conclusion is. We're gonna we're gonna basically say a reason why this is so disgustingly complicated and why all these problems are here, but For but sure. you can see in some of their comments and some of like their general discussions, um, right? They, they they give some comments. Talk about Nichols and Noby, right? Yeah. Um, Demise so, down there at the bottom that they right. yeah Demise okay. is in there, right? So if motivation, so starting here, if motivations to uphold moral responsibility increase compatibilist responding because a bunch of a bunch of the studies show that. Um, it is not surprising that Feltz and colleagues found high rates of compatibilism in both high and low effect morally bad conditions, and that Nichols and Noby found high rates of compatibilism in their morally bad conditions, but not in their abstract moral responsibility condition. That is, again, it's complicated, because exposure to morally bad actions increases desires for moral responsibility. So they're showing yes. part, of, part of what's so complicated is we have these all these emotional responses to things um, that, that get all tangled up. 
Thus, the present results suggest that it is not effect per se that increases compatibilist responding, but rather desires to uphold human moral responsibility. This also explains why Roskies and Nichols found that people were more compatibilist about their own universe and why Nemias et al. found that people refuse to deny the ability to choose to an immoral actor. People seek to uphold the ability to hold fellow uh, human beings morally responsible and particularly for morally bad actions. Um, uh, I think there's another... Uh, anyways, they, they, they go through in, in, in all of these and, and basically say, look, like the, the, the big takeaway is it's super complicated, right? It's just not the case that the folk intuition is, is incompatibilist. Um, they, they actually, I, I, I didn't find the sentence, but there, there's a sentence where it's, it basically says, look, it's probably actually incoherent to say that the folk intuition is either compatibilist or incompatibilist. Like that's, that's probably just an incoherent takeaway because it's just, it's just so wrong. Yeah. I couldn't say better myself. Uh, and so this idea of if they're going to defend, support the controversial premise of the free thinking argument via intuition or common sense to that, I say, good luck. Yeah. Uh, good luck because these, uh, other studies, the uh, included, uh, they show error theory. They have an error theory of why, why then have these incompatibilists such as uh, Nichols and Nobi have come up to these studies with incompatibilist assumptions? Well, they say because it's bypassing or like you say, it's, it's complicated. They, they frame it differently. Maybe it, it has a motivational issue. Um, they frame it to their students wrong. It, there's so many different things that could go into it to get the the conclusion you want out of it that's really difficult to put any amount of conclusive evidence on it and right. yet here we are uh, seeing Moreland and Stratton try to put conclusive evidence on it at best we can say this we agree that it's intuitive and commonsensical that our agency is not bypassed we can agree that we're unconstrained we're not forced and hey we can even agree that we're morally responsible mm -hmm. Compatibles can say all of this. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, thank you again uh, for for joining. Um, as as we discuss, I'm sure I'll have you on again as we uh, talk about. I'm, I'm sure there'll be more coming out from the from these two. Um, but you and I, uh, I, I think, do do. Uh, we have a lot of a lot of fun discussions on on debates yeah. as they come up and a lot of reviews. So I appreciate uh, I appreciate you. Um, as always, I'll put your the link to your YouTube uh, down in uh, the link below. Um, and, uh, any, any final thoughts before we go? No. So again, my volume one of my reply to Stratton is still free on academia. You can search me Colton Carlson, academia Stratton and on Google, and I'll be like one of the first links, probably the first link that pops up. My volume two is, uh, scheduled to be released around, um, probably the end of September, maybe the beginning of October, somewhere around there. I will actually probably split it in volume, a third volume, just because I want to get the philosophy section out. I want that volume to just be philosophy. And then I have just a couple of concerns uh, with theology that I'll probably post later this year. Um, but yeah, and so uh, since this was primarily about philosophy, I, I feel like that's relevant. So I will be posting my philosophical response to Stratton's book, Mere Molinism, shortly. So yeah. We'll see. Well, and, and I've told you before, I'll, I'll say it again on the record. If you if you uh, produce an audio version of uh, of your books, of your reviews, 
um, break, you know, a, a, a chapter, an episode or something, I would love to, to air it on the podcast um, sure. and have, have some audio versions out there because there are a lot of people that, you know, th this comes up all the time. I mean, I have I have written blogs. I have, you know, I, I usually turn most of my written blogs into an episode to put it out because I just got so much feedback from people that some people are like, I don't read articles. I listen while I drive. I listen while I commute. I do all that kind of like while I'm traveling or while I'm working out or whatever it is. Um, and so having audio versions uh, is is helpful. So if you want to have that, I know you have the YouTube channel, um, but I, you don't have the you don't have an audio version of, of your. The, no, I just have my buddy and I are just doing a quick glance by glance yeah. section. So no. I, I would love an audio version. I'll host it for you and, and can have it out there. So sure. with all of your enormous free time that I know you, you have with, <laughs> with the new child. Yeah. It's fine. Appreciate it. All right. Well, thank, thank you again so much for joining and, uh, and we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Well, thank you again for, for joining us here on The Freed Thinker. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free. You can email me at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com. Visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or come and join in uh, the group page on Facebook. So again, thank you for joining.